the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. Russell and I have an announcement to make, but I'll do that at the end of the show because it's not as interesting as what our guest today has to say. My guest in this episode is a brilliant dude that has done some really amazing work on the case. He is currently working as a military analyst for Uncle Sam, and because of the position he holds, it's best for him to remain anonymous. I've been pestering this guy for a while now, and I'm very excited to finally have him on our show. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you'll enjoy this episode with my anonymous friend. I'm an army officer, I'm a lieutenant colonel, and I'm an analyst at the same time as my job. And I got into the Cooper case like a lot of other people got into the, uh, the case just uh, through TV and reading about it, things like that. So I don't do this as a job. I don't represent the government. It's a, it's a hobby. Uh, grew up on the East Coast and uh, currently live on the East Coast. And what got you into D.B. Cooper? The first thing that got me into D.B. Cooper was Unsolved Mysteries, and that was 1988. And this new show came out, I believe it was on Wednesday nights, and it looked pretty interesting. It was poor DVR before, and I think we had a VCR, we, we couldn't just record everything. And literally, I'm absolutely positive of this, it was the first episode that I saw. It was the second vignette, I think it was there were four vignettes that they would do. The second one was D.B. Cooper, and I remember really being into it. And I only saw it once at that point, because if I could have, I would have gone back and watched it. So somehow it sort of uh, stuck with me through the years. Uh, my younger brother watched it with me, and we would you know, periodically talk about D.B. Cooper if he came up in the news. And as I remember then, I feel like there was another episode of... Uh, you're, you're probably too young to remember when Unsolved Mysteries was, when it came out, it was Robert Stack. And what they would they would do is they would have the Unsolved Mysteries. Well, after about a year or two years of it being a good show, they would show updates. Update, so-and-so found, or, you know, kidnapping yep, solved. Yeah, I watched Unsolved Mysteries. And I think there was an update on that episode that referenced uh, McCoy, Richard McCoy. So they made it look like McCoy was D.B. Cooper. I, I believe that I'm sure at the time it made sense. And you had an FBI agent that said, hey, I, I'm pretty sure I shot D.B. Cooper. You know, I had no idea at the time that, you know, I didn't know the details of uh, the 302s and didn't realize McCoy was only 28 years old. And you just didn't piece these things together. You believe what the, you know, you see on TV, people still do. And through the years, I would, you know, I'd pick up an article every now and then. I never owned a book. There was no, uh, I didn't really get on the internet about D.B. Cooper until April the 5th of 2018. Uh, I, I proved to you, I can show you the email. What's coincidental is the suspect we're going to talk about was actually born on April the 5th. My brother sent me an email. He said, hey, check this out. It was the Wikipedia link. And it must have hit just at the right time. I was either, you know, 
come going to launch, coming back from the gym, whatever it was. I had a second on the computer at work, checked it. I was like, all right, I'm gonna let me let me get to this tonight when I get home. Um, so when I got home, I, I I looked and and I read the Wikipedia link, and I started to look at the at the money and the flight path because I looked at it and said, there's no way I'm gonna get involved with this. I can't solve this. I can't help anybody. I'm not gonna offer anything new. But as someone who's curious about how things work, machines, you know, cars, plumbing, you name it, whatever, I started to look at how I would have spent the money and how, not how I would have, like what I would have spent it on, but how I would have maneuvered the money, laundered it, so to say. And then I looked at the flight path and then I just started to get involved from there and it sort of spiraled into um, being involved. So uh, long answer, but that's, uh, I, I, would, I would say it goes back to Unsolved Mysteries. Um, that was my first uh, introduction. Yeah, I think that was probably the first place I saw D.B. Cooper, too, on Unsolved Mysteries. I was pretty young, but I just remember thinking, okay, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, to say something I've said a few times, you know, Tom Kay told me, you know, with D.B. Cooper, I thought this would be something interesting that I could do for six months. Yeah. And, you know, and here I am 10 years later still right. talking about it. And you and I were just chatting. You've met you've met all the main players in, in the case face to face, which is great. Uh, I find that fascinating. Um, and you're you know, you're, you're starting to become the uh, the repository now of, of the history in, in a way. So it's good. Yeah, it's been an, an interesting project. It's a lot more. Um, I don't want to say successful, but it's turned out a lot better than I thought it ever would. Well, let's start with the flight path since you brought that up. Sure. Is the flight path accurate? I believe it's accurate. I, I don't. I don't see any compelling information that that leads me to believe that it's not. Um, there are. There's a couple guys that have really looked at it and said, "Hey, there's some there's some questionable uh, information. There's variability. They believe in a different flight path." I'm cool with that. I, I think. I think all these little tangents that we go on on the on the forum and 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 so forth help keep things alive. Uh, I don't get personal with anybody. Some people I think get a little upset if <laughs> you know. I'm not. I'm not going to get upset about the flight path. But um, for me, the I, I zeroed in on a suspect fairly early. The flight path does not enter. Uh, does not rule in or rule out my guy now. If it's the wreck of flight path, which is landed wherever in Cleolum, yeah, that's uh, I'm not sure that 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 flows with my flight path. But I believe that with uh, you know this is 1971. There's a lot of technology. It was the Cold War. You had uh, you know the pilots had flown before. I believe they knew where they were going. The corridor from Seattle to Portland was not some thousand mile stretch long or wide uh, kept them within a pretty good area I believe the placard um, to this I believe the placard came from from that flight from from 305 there's been some questions on whether it came from another plane the odds of a placard falling out right there are pretty slim um, and I've got I can show you my maps the Vic, Vic, Victor 23 turns it was a real hard turn Coincidentally, a couple minutes later is where the placard falls out. I, I believe, I believe the hijacker had a general idea where he was—not specific, but general—and he knew when that plane shifted and turned. I can feel when a plane turns. When we turned to to, to land in Portland the other day, I could, you know, I could see it. I could feel it. Um, so I'm sure he could feel that. And then the placard comes out. So uh, you had F. Uh, 
F-106s following the plane. I think there might have been a C-130 in the background. So uh, in general, I believe, yeah, that, that flight path is, is fairly accurate. If it's not, cool. Hey, if they, if they flew over Tina Bar, then great. That answers how the money got there. Um, but that's only $3,000 of or I'm sorry, only 300 bills, $6,000 out of 10,000 bills, $200,000. So flight path, money, fine. Not irrelevant or interesting, but um, I do believe flight path is accurate. If it's not, it doesn't doesn't really change my my mind. Hey, that keeps the story alive. Great. Let's argue about the flight path <laughs> for a few more months, you know. So. That is interesting that you say it doesn't matter for your suspect, the flight path. Yeah. Which... I, I like because if, you know, if it's a few miles east or west of what they're proposed, then, you know, you're cool with it. Okay, fine. Right, uh, right. Whatever. Yeah. And I tend to, I tend to believe that the flight path is accurate. Yes. Yeah. So. I'm but, a more, I'm more concerned with, you know, if, if, if the flight path was say over maybe Mount Hood, that terrain is significantly different than north of, of Portland, downtown Portland. So uh, that, that, that would change things. Just walking around the woods here the other day, with you know, hiking with my dad, and I'm thinking to myself, you could have a compass, you could have anything, you could have a GPS. If you land in those trees, if you survive without getting hurt, it's going to be hard to get out of there. So, um, but yeah, I, th- I think in general the flight path is, I think it was planned. I think most of it was planned. Um, the absence of landmarks is actually a, a benefit, I believe, to someone um, like William Smith, who was in reconnaissance, in that imagine you're flying over a city, Philadelphia, New York, the big cities on the East Coast. It, it, I, I know when I'm over Philadelphia, it looks different than New York City, but you don't know exactly where you are when you're flying over some of these places because there's so many landmarks, there's so many lights, there's so many rivers, there's so many bridges, there's so many cars, there's so many different highways. It takes You know where you are, but not exactly. Imagine if you're flying south from Seattle. There are zero landmarks between Seattle and uh, Portland except for Tacoma and the Lake Merwin Dam. You have Interstate 5. There's not a lot. So I picture I picture that plane flying over just darkness, and then for a second there's light. There's something that says, okay, boom, I'm now 50 miles south because I've timed it and everything else. Uh, not me. I didn't time it. Imagine, imagine you're on the plane. You know the, you know the distance that you're traveling. You know the direction. You know the speed, so on and so forth. Now you see a landmark or he, see, he feels the plane shift or something. Got it. Now it's time to, to potentially get out, of, get out of the aircraft. Uh, so. You mentioned William Smith. How did you come across him? Because that wasn't a suspect that was already on the radar. No, he didn't. He didn't exist in anybody's mind. I, I believe Max Gunther talked to him. I don't know if he knew the name. I, as I said before, I got into the flight path and into the money, and I was focused on that for a couple, you know, maybe a couple of days. And I emailed uh, the, the the value of having the internet. Now I got on there and, and I found Bruce Smith, which is a standard. You know, he's, he's the first name that pops up. Shot him an email. And I started looking at all the books that were available, and I read some articles, and I came across this uh, interview with Martin Andrade that Bruce had done. And Martin talked about this book here, D.B. Cooper, What Really Happened, uh, which I have you know, right here in front of me. And I ordered, I think, Bruce's book, Max Gunther's book, Martin's book, and I started to read. That's a great place to start, by the way. If yeah, anyone's yeah. looking for books to start, that's a great combo. Yeah, I think Bruce's and Marn's are my, my two favorites for sure. Um, 
Max is two, but we know not not all of it's true, right? So it's, right. if you're learning about the case, there's other books that you should probably read. So um, I emailed Bruce and I emailed Martin. They know who they were, you know, and but both emailed me back fairly quickly. Very very nice emails, positive kind of hey, welcome to the case, so on and so forth. Yep, great um, guys. You know, imagine if I had emailed, you know somebody else on that form, you know, without naming certain names, I, right. I, I might have quit. I might have quit right away. So uh, I started to throw the flight path and the money stuff at them. And I, I gave Bruce my theory on who this person was. At the time, I think I suspected he had had parachute experience. I didn't believe he was special operations at the time. I don't, I don't think. And, um, but very quickly, I, I, I kind of got into the, the Max Gunther book. I read I read that book, and I thought to myself, "This is too grand of a story to be made up." I don't care how much you're how you got a really good imagination to make up the entire thing. And we know we know parts of it are made up. So I started to communicate uh, with Martin about the book and the character in there, and I was all set to come and. Uh, maybe even come out here and look at the area because uh, people that, I guess I could talk a little bit about the book. D.B. Cooper's the hijacker. He, he gets on the plane. He does a standard hijacking that we know. In Max Gunther's book, the hijacker lands and he breaks his leg or an ankle and he crawls to this cabin by this lake and is in a, sh- in a shed and this woman named Clara comes out and finds this, you know, this man with dark skin and dark eyes in, in, in her shed. I think they drink brandy or something. They fall in love, and that's the that's the story. So you're smiling, I'm smiling. It's yep. it's ridiculous as I as I say it. And uh, but as I you know, I read the I, I read the book. The you know, there's there's. There's pictures in there of a letter that Max Gunther got. Um, he put an ad in, in the Village Voice in New York City. There seemed to be some credible aspects of the book. Definitely. And as you got, as I got further into Max Gunther, I learned he went to Princeton. He was Ivy League educated, served in the Army. He had written best-selling books. He was, had a good pedigree. He was well-respected. He lived in Connecticut, I think, at the time. I thought to myself, that's it. Just seems unusual. There's there's some patterns in there that don't uh, that seem a little more accurate or, or seem likely to be possibly true versus completely false. In this whole time, I, I was talking to Martin, and we only we really only talked for a really short period, maybe two weeks max, um, and only a couple days about the whole Dan Clare, which is how I ended up with William Smith. The good thing about you editing is you'll be able to get all these. The long, the long stretches, because I could probably talk about this for a while and kind of go off on tangents. Martin, um, I said to Martin, I said, hey, uh, how, how, how accurate do you think this is? Is it kind of a hoax? And he said, no, I, I believe it's, I believe there's this guy uh, in the book could really be D.B. Cooper. And he sent me the 302s on the Elsinore Skydive Center visit. I had no idea that these existed. I didn't, I'm not even sure. I knew what a 302 was because from movies. That's it. And um, if you've seen the FBI report on the Elsinore skydive visit, there's witness testimony that says a man that fits the description came there in the summer of 1971 asking questions about how to jump out of a plane, 
was wearing Corcoran jump boots, which are jump boots that, that airborne uh, soldiers wear. They're very proud of them. They shine them. They lace them. Um, this guy smoked Raleigh filter tip cigarettes. The FBI took it seriously. They got all the jump cards and, and all that. Uh, and we, you know, we can get into that further on. But that that kind of hooked me. I was actually I was in Los Angeles. I was getting on a plane flying back, and I, I opened my email. And it was from Martin. He said, "Hey, yeah, no, it's real." And I said, "All right, I want to get those cards. I want to I want to find lake houses that have meadows that slope down." So I got on, you know, I got on Google Maps and I'm looking at the air. There's not a lot of lakes between on the flight path. So I'm like, oh, and and I also looked at the, uh, if you know, in the book, there, there's a big section of the disappearance. Dan LeClaire, you know, born Paul Cotton becomes Dan LeClaire, so on and so forth. He disappears from his wife. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, I'm going to find this guy who disappeared. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I you know listed out a bunch of different ways. Martin sort of helped me channel that and he's like look i'm not sure the cabin's real the whole disappearance thing is straight out of max's article in 1962 in the book uh, or in the um true magazine if you've read that i've got I actually have the magazine it is word for word so the filler in the book the, the stuff that's not truthful it's not like it's an outright fabrication max wrote an article and he said all right i'm going to use my article and put that in the book because i don't have history of the disappearance Man, this is, I started April 5th, I think by around April 24th or so. Martin and I had talked a few times. Um, he had mentioned this guy, Dan Claire, that fit. There's two, there's, there's two names in the, in the book, uh, Dan LeClaire and Paul Cotton, that are, and Clara. Everything else is their real names. Hemmelsbach, Dennis Line, the, the, the gate agent, so on and so forth. But the three made-up names, Dan Claire, uh, Dan LeClaire, Paul Cotton, and Clara. And Dan Cooper. And D.B. Cooper. And Dan <laughs> Cooper, right. But that was a real, he became a real person right. that, that day on November the 24th. Um, so Martin had told me about, uh, he sent me some documents from FamilySearch.org, which is like an Ancestry.com. And there was all these enlistments from New Jersey and New York. Because in the book, the gentleman lives in, in, in uh, Newark, Newark, New Jersey, which is right near New York City. And there's a lot of names. There's a lot of Dans in there. There's, there, there's, these are guys that didn't either, you know, they came from Canada, they enlisted in the Army. Um, and this was only from, I think, Newark and surrounding areas. If you expand it to Pennsylvania and New Jersey and, and other parts of, of the Northeast, you just get an overwhelming amount of individuals. I took a, some of the names and to learn, I, I didn't use Family Search, I, I grabbed the list and I went over to Ancestry and learned. Learned that interface. I thought I searched my grandfather, and but I, I know a lot about my family, so it wasn't as as interesting. So I grabbed the name Dan Claire because the character in the book's name is Dan LeClaire. And I looked at this guy, Dan Claire, and started searching for him. And I found some weird connections. Like he had he worked for the railroad, because which at that point had no no bearing whatsoever what I was doing. I, he could have been a baker. It didn't matter. But he worked for the railroad. That, that, that eventually led me to, to be able to get some more information. Born in Canada. His mother's name was Cora. And I thought, Clara, Cora, all right, well, I'm starting to draw some conclusions. Um, in the end, I'm not sure Cora really has anything to do with it. But at the time, I believed it. So I got... It's interesting. It is, yeah. And um, I, I looked at the family tree. He had moved from Canada to New Jersey and um, had... You know, like 
aunts and cousins and because in, in the book there he ends up living with his his mother lives with his sister or uh, her sister or whatever and um so i got i'm thinking to myself wow this is kind of interesting i, I got a hold of bruce and martin and they were positive about it but they just you know hey you know bruce bruce like hey all right cool if you think it's aliens go for it it's great it's probably well, the eighth theory he's heard welcome that to day, the case so. yeah hey go for it you know that's if, if you want to do that martin was more of uh hey you know good good ideas you got to put them on a, in a parachute on the plane so on and so forth and that was kind of it that was that was the end of april and we um I was excited to talk to both guys, and I just kind of went on my own. My, went on my own after that point. So now I've got I've got this guy Dan Clare from Canada, lived in enlisted in the army, was in New Jersey, and I got. And this is just one of the the, the, the coincidences. If you go on ancestry.com and you're searching for your relatives, if they serve in the military, you're able to get some information. It's helpful because this. Uh, you might find some records, maybe where they live, street names and things like that. There's some censuses. The censuses only go to 1940 now. It's based off laws that we have. The 1950 census will be available in a couple of years. But what's interesting was the railroad system had a retirement system like Social Security, like the military, was organized just like that in many ways. Uh, they kept very good records. You had to apply for your retirement. There's a Railroad, reti- railroad Retirement Board. Um, I think those archives are in Georgia now. So I said, hey, I got some time. Let me send some emails. I sent away for information on Dan Clare. And to the railroad? Yeah, to the Railroad Retirement Board. And they said, yeah, we've got information on him. They sent some some information back. In the meantime, I think I had found out that he had worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. And this is getting to how I found Bill Smith, William Smith. And the Lehigh Valley Railroad was a... uh, it was a huge railroad on the East Coast. So during the railroads came of age just before the Civil War and after, a lot of what they were hauling was coal. They had passengers and troops and things like that. But the, 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 the coal region of Pennsylvania, uh, one of the main coal-producing regions of the United States of the world at the time, was in eastern Pennsylvania. So the Lehigh Valley was one of the main railroads there that hauled coal. So it was you know, a large company. Um, Eventually became part of the Pennsylvania Railroad. You see that on Monopoly games. It's uh, you know that's that that's more of a well-known railroad. But the Le- I found out Dan worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. I started to research the Lehigh Valley Railroad, and to frame the railroads for you on the East Coast, there, there's a lot of different names: Pennsylvania Railroad, New York Central Railroad, Lehigh Valley Railroad, Erie Lackawanna. These are all old railroads. They don't exist anymore. They're now CSX. They became Conrail. They're CSX and Norfolk Southern. Out here on the West Coast, you'd have Burlington Northern, Santa Fe, Union Pacific. Imagine these are TWA, Eastern Airlines, United Airlines, Southwest Airlines, so on and so forth. The railroads, same deal. They just didn't fly. They took passengers. They had freight. Huge logistics operations. So it's like an airline meets FedEx meets UPS. And I found this site that was a Lehigh Valley Railroad Remembrance or you know, a, a reference, uh, what would you call it, legacy, so to say, to the to the to some of the railroaders. And I found some of these pictures of guys. And I'm looking for Dan Clare, because he's the guy that I'm, I'm looking. I'm kind of, you know, I'm interested in him. I found out he'd been in the military. I think he, you know, I, I think he may be the guy in the book. I start to see some of these connections. Some ended up not being connections. I probably maybe, I don't know, 
dreamed them up in my mind because I'm I wanted them to be certain things and other ones just popped up that just made too much sense and I found this picture of uh it was in Jersey City New Jersey it was mid 80s and I I figured it was mid 80s just based off uh there's a um the, the the picture I think one or two after it there's a there's a uh, Sports Illustrated it's the Chicago Bears New England Patriots Super Bowl of uh it was 85 season, 86. It's 85 Bears. Everybody still talks about them like they're the, you know, one of the best yep. teams ever. They, 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 I think they probably were. So I, I, I was able to date the picture, and that's the picture that you see in the newspaper of, of William Smith. And I had, I had passed it a couple times. It was just a, a normal-looking guy in, in a sweater. And I finally went back to it, and I, and I looked at it, and I got a... Uh, you know, you can you can see as I started to compare it to the to the composite, I'm thinking to myself, wow, so brown eyes, brown eyes, the hair's combed the same way, the ears, nose is a little bit bigger, you know, obviously it's probably grown over time, a fifteen year difference. The eyebrows, kind of the smirk and everything. So now I think this is Dan Clare, but I only have I have pictures of Dan in the forties and the nineties, and then I got one I think in maybe the sixties. Well, so when you saw this picture, you thought the picture was Dan Clare. There was no name attached no, to this. No, it just said no. It just said Jersey. These were Jersey City employees, and I had, a, I had an employee roster at the time. Of, Jersey City was one of the locations that the Lehigh Valley Railroad was. Jersey City is right across the uh, the uh, Hudson River from New York City. So if you're in New York City, Manhattan, you can actually see right across to where the Lehigh Valley Railroad was at the time. It's not there anymore. And just not too far away would be Newark. So these are all stops along the railroads at the time. And I see Dan Clare's name on that list. And William Smith's on there too, but he's penciled in at the bottom. It's hard to see. He must have come back from his World War II service. And so now I'm thinking this is, I believe this could be D.B. Cooper. I see the picture, everything's matching up, but I don't know who it is. I think it's Dan Clare. And this is April. It all started April 5th. By May, I mean, I had been, I think within two, three weeks, I had been talking to friends in, in the FBI. Like, not, I'm not saying like agents in the Seattle office, but through the years, you, you, know, you meet people and you go to school with them or you serve with them and they eventually go on other careers. Most of them thought I was a little crazy, but, you know, um, I had, I had said, hey, I think this is a possibility. And they're like, well, okay, whatever, you know, do your thing. Don't, they, know, they knew I wasn't going to go crazy or anything at the time. They, they hoped I wouldn't. <laughs> but I thought in my mind, wait a second, I've got this D.B. Cooper suspect. It's an unsolved case. The FBI should know about it. Won't they care? And you find out later, no, no one, I would say no one cares. We care, obviously. But it's almost 50 years ago. There's been a lot of things that have happened since. I realized kind of quickly that nobody was going to, be really excited about it. Did you get any reaction or any response no, or anything? What's yeah, they I I sent I sent a letter to uh, the Seattle office uh, to their their public affairs officer and it just said right here. That's it. That's all. It was very short. It said I've enclosed some documentation. There's a book written in 1985 that seems to point to a couple characters that have uh, said they were involved with the hijack. I've also found an individual that, that matches what's in the book. 
the railroad retirement records came back. There were some injuries in 1971. There was heart disease, which everything that, that went along with was in the book. I figured, hey, I'll just, you know, I'll throw it over the wall to you guys. Take it. You can see at the end, I said, don't, please don't contact me back. I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I don't want, you know, I know you guys are busy. Don't, I don't need anything. See what happens. That was it. Didn't hear anything. Um, didn't expect to hear anything. Around Memorial Day, I find out this guy's name is William Smith. I had a little knot in my stomach because now I've said, hey, I've, I've identified this gentleman, Dan Clare, who I know is deceased as potentially being involved. And now I have a completely different name. And I think my first reaction was, man, I hope he's not still alive because I've just, you know, I potentially dimed out somebody's grandfather or father, and it's a whole different ball game if somebody's alive. I definitely did not. I didn't want to see this guy go to, to jail. Even as a little kid, I didn't want to see him. This isn't, he's not Osama bin Laden. He's not the Zodiac. It's just, I got it. If you were on the plane, you probably feel different. But um, I definitely didn't want to see an old guy go to jail. He had, he had passed recently. I'd found out really recently, as in January of 2018. So I, I get involved April the 5th, 2018. He died January the 23rd. And that opened the floodgates when I found out what this gentleman's name was, William Smith. It's pretty hard to find. I mean, that's the, the most common surname in America is Smith. It might have, it, it, there's no question about it. It's the most common name. And if the first name's William, so imagine going on Google. You know, if I Google your name, I might find you in Oregon or my name or whatever. But there's a lot of William Smiths out there. <laughs> yeah. I was flying the next day, and I stayed up all night. I just kept going. I knew, <laughs> I knew William Smith. Ah, man, did I know he was in the Navy at the time? I don't know if I did. I knew just a little bit, and I knew he was on the railroad. And I found a William Smith that had worked on the railroad in New Jersey, and I looked at his, his obituary, and it wasn't the same guy. And I'm thinking, wow. Eventually, I found an obituary of William J. Smith. Worked for the Lehigh Valley Railroad. The comments on the 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 the, the obituary were, you know, it was a gentleman. It was just a, a good overall guy. Served in the Navy during World War II. That's it. No, nothing. Nothing that would indicate that he is D.B. Cooper. But I got a picture. I've got a book. So in my mind now, I'm thinking, these guys, these guys, these were the ones that called Max Gunther. They had something to do with this. I'm not necessarily thinking that I found D.B. Cooper. I'm thinking I found the individuals that called Max Gunther and pretended to be D.B. Cooper, and hence his book in 1985. And that's how I got, that's how I got to William Smith. So long, long answer. So I started with Dan Clare, then I end up, now I've got a gentleman named William J. Smith. I don't have a lot of information about him. Um, but then I start to, I learn about the railroads and how that could have been tied to the grudge and the escape and the... Uh, potentially uh, particles on the tie, stuff starts to kind of fall together over a period of a couple months. But when you read that obituary at that point, you weren't sure if Smith was Cooper or if Dan Clare was Cooper? Yeah, so that's the obituary right there. Um, obviously, this is a 80-year-old you know, man, not, not the, the middle-aged guy that's D.B. Cooper. You can see... Um, you know, where he lived, and th that's it. I I'd already sent a letter to the FBI saying, hey, check out the book. You might want to look into this guy's name. So I had to send a little while later, I, I sent this this pack, what you're looking at, this exact copy of what I sent. I said, hey, by the way, the 
information I sent you is accurate, that picture and everything else, the name is not Dan Clare, it is William J. Smith. And you can see how I've, I, I laid it out. This is now in July. I said, um, I believe the garage could have had to, do, had to do something with the railroad bankruptcies. They were huge on the East Coast. Even here on the West Coast, there wasn't a bankruptcy, but there was a decent-sized merger. Uh, the olive complexion, how he could have escaped from the area, the tie, the tie. You know, we, we've been we've been living in this world of hey, this 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 small amount of titanium is indicative of him working at, I don't you know industrial chemicals because that's what it said in Max Gunther's book or RMI titanium um, or the you know Tektronix because of the CRT tubes and the yttrium. But you know, as I did the analysis here, I mean, there's. Gold, gold is found at the same level as titanium. Nobody's saying he works, works in a gold mine. So I sent a pretty decent-sized uh, packet of information to, uh, you know, to the Seattle field office saying, hey, you know, here's Max's letter. Here's all these connections between these real people. And I found a lot that, that matched the book, the birth date of March 2nd, uh, which was the ad. That's the same uh, birth date as Dan's wife. Death, not death certificates, but death notice saying, hey, this is when individuals die. You can see this is Dan's wife, birthday, March 2nd. This is the letter that he wrote, that somebody wrote to Max Gunther saying, please put this ad wishing my wife happy birthday on March 2nd. Really coincidental. And oh, by the way, her name is Clara, Claire, Clara, so on and so forth. An obituary for Dan Clare. Martin and I had talked, and Martin had found an obituary that he thought had ruled out Dan Clare. I, when I got the obituary from the newspaper in, in Pennsylvania, what was interesting was it said he, he didn't have children, which is not true. He did have two sons. And also said he was stationed in Alaska during World War II. So I'm, I've got these connections to the book, and I've got this guy, Dan Clare. I don't know a lot of, I don't have a whole lot of information about his military career, but he's stationed in Alaska during World War II, and Alaska's not far from Washington. To get to, to Alaska, you got to you know basically fly through likely McCord Air Force Base. So when I finally got um, when I finally got some of Dan Clare's military records, it showed that he had been stationed at Fort Lewis, Washington. It's just one more little tidbit of information, and the benefit of us talking. In this arena about D.B. Cooper is, we assume the listener knows enough about the case. I don't have to, you know, you and I aren't walking through how many passengers, you know, where he was sitting, what he was wearing, so on and so forth. Yeah. And so if I know I have these connections to this, you know, individual that was stationed at Fort Lewis. The character's name in the book is Dan LeClaire from Canada. There's a real guy named Dan Clare. It's just a lot of coincidences. It just seems really like, hey... Rubbing the F, rubbing it in somebody's face, and that was the second. That's Dan in his, I think his eighties before he passed. This is him in Newark. That's the Fort Lewis uh, document you can see there, uh, right here in Fort Lewis. That's the that's the Lehigh Valley Railroad um, roster. Claire one seventeen. It's not on there, but you can. William Smith's name is on. Is on one of them. Yeah, you know, there's a comment from an individual said, you know, after he passed, I worked for him for many years. He was a true gentleman, good man, whatever. Um, I sent pictures of railroad operations, um, machine shop operations at railroads because, you know, titanium swirl, all the, all the things that were found in there. The assumption is that a railroad, you're either the conductor, the engineer, or you're loading freight. Well, there's a lot of stuff that goes on on railroads. Um, 
huge logistical operations. And I believe that some of the particles of the tide possibly could have come from that. We know it's a we know it came from a manufacturing environment. That's the second thing I sent off. And a July to the FBI, I figure I'm done with the case, not really following it. I think I had talked to Doug Perry at the time, and that was kind of it. Within, I think, within a day or two of sending that, I got back. I'd sent away to the Railroad Retirement Board for uh, William Smith's information. So I've got a loose connection to the book here at, at the time. Um, I got somebody that looks like D.B. Cooper. I've got some connections. I've got the railroad bankruptcies. I've got people that live near Max Gunther in, in Newark, which isn't far from New York City. It's still circumstantial. It's still circumstantial to this day. I mean, nothing, nothing is, is definitive. It's suggestive at this point. Were you thinking that with your information, you give it to the FBI, they have more resources, more access, they could take your investigation to the next level. Absolutely. I figured I figured they've got an interest and they've got the resources. Uh, neither one is accurate. So they <laughs> it's it's too old of a case. I understand there's other stuff going on. I don't want to find out that somebody got sent over to search with DB Cooper and, you know, a terrorist walked across the, the border and, and did something. Uh, crazy. So, and understanding, you know, how government resources work and money, I understand that if there's no, you know, if there's nobody pushing this, if there's no money behind it, you can't roll in one day as a bank robbery operative in the FBI saying, hey, by the way, I'm going to be working on this hijacking. Not to mention it's got this reputation of having crazy people on the case, right? So Definitely. I'm sure people have accused you of that and me too, but, uh, Anyhow, no. So I, I, I thought, hey, there's a book. It's a legitimate book from a legitimate author. I've identified people that I believe were the individuals that called Max. Here's some information that I got, all open source information. None of it was done with any clearance of mine or anything like that. It didn't involve any of my friends. Um, and that, it's, you know, nothing happened. So then I got this record back, series of records on from the Railroad, railroad Retirement Board. So when you retire from the railroad, you've got to send in some of your military documentation because it, it counts towards some of your time. And I look here, this is, this is a not notice of separation. Um, I would call it a DD-214. Um, I'm not sure what the Navy called it, if it even has a, has a number on it. But you can see here, you know, Smith, William, so on and so forth, joins in New Jersey. And what's interesting is what his training was. All I know is, is, is William Smith served in the Navy. My immediate assumption was he was on a ship. He was on a cruiser, a destroyer. Didn't even think, you know, maybe he was on an aircraft carrier and, and was, he was a fueler or something like that for a plane. You can see right here, aerial photographer and gunner. Aviation Fundamental School, Jacksonville, Florida. All these, all these notes that say, wait a second, he's not just, you know, he's not swabbing decks on a cruiser. He was, he was in naval aviation. Now, that's another another connection to the case. We know that the individual that hijacked the plane likely had some understanding of aviation at what level is questionable. Um, but I believe he had some. I don't think he was just a, I don't think he was just a regular guy that, you know, uh, did model airplanes. Yeah, Although I one agree. Of, one of his hobbies was model airplanes. I can show, you know, that that's all in here as well. So I shot this off to Seattle again saying, hey, all right, if you're not interested in what I sent before, here's another piece something you got to look at this now he, he had aviation experience i didn't expect to hear anything back i didn't 
got it, no problem. The next thing I got, because I, the the railroad records came back quicker. Um, then I got military records, and um, if you've ever sent away for military records for someone. First of all, they've got to be discharged, I think, 60 or 70 years. It's a long time. You can't just say, hey, give me so-and-so's records, you know, uh, General Schwarzkopf. They're not going to send them to you. It's free. It's open information after a certain period of time. There was also a huge fire in St. Louis, Missouri in 1973 where the records were stored. So most, most World War II-era veterans, you will not be able to find anything on them. Hence, Dan Clare. All I had was a pay voucher that said he was at Fort Lewis. I didn't have any other information at the time. For whatever reason, William Smith's naval records were available at the time. Um, I don't know if they're still available now. I've, I've talked to the director there, and we've had a conversation that... Someone probably could not now get some of this information just for, for different reasons. So I get, I get back this series of, of records, and it starts to, stuff starts to fill in. Uh, th- things start to seem very unusual. He requests his military records in 1998. Hmm. All of a sudden, that was after his, um, after his wife had died. Interesting date that the request went through. Eleven twenty four ninety eight. Right through a lawyer for military records. Why you would why you would request military records in your late seventies through a through a law firm? I don't know. You can't get medical records, so there's there's some you'll see some in, in the sense of if you sign up, they're going to put your height, weight, some basics, but you're not going to see you know went for whatever you know blood work at this time. Height matches pretty close. At age seventeen, he's one hundred sixty pounds. Five. What is that? Five nine. Yeah, five um, eight and a half. Scar on his right hand. In the book, there's a scar on his right hand. Hobbies when he enlisted. Model planes. Model planes, photography, and photography printing. And printing. Service on an aircraft carrier. Why did you want to join the Navy? Desire to fly. Enlisted for two years. You know, photography, aerial gunner. What else did I highlight? That was kind of cool. Fingerprints. That is neat. Yeah. So now I've got, I've got these. Um, and were the, did you submit the fingerprints to the FBI? Yeah, so that's the last thing I sent to the FBI was, I think, September, October, November, rough time frame. It's only, it's only went on for a couple months. I sent off the packet, and it's like, that's it, Don, I'm out. Don't, you know, if, 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 if you're not interested in, at this point, hey, have, you know, do, do your thing. I'm good. I've sort of come to the point of diminishing returns. There's not a lot of information I can get at this point. I've, I've studied the railroads. I've studied the individual. Oh, by the way, I mean, I'm, you know, full-time job at the time. I'm traveling. I have a life. So it wasn't like yeah. all the time. And that's the, uh, that's the last I, you know, really that's about the last I've done in terms of communication. There's some, you know, I got the website out there with some information. I'll pick up a tidbit here and there. Uh, there's a few things I'd like to learn, but I'm, I won't go about getting the information. It's it'd have to be have to be somebody else. So, um, again, long answer to whatever the question was, but that's <laughs> that's how I ended up with uh, going down the route of this of the individual William Smith. Getting you know the, the records indicate aviation experience, desire to fly. Um, he understood parachutes. I can I, hopefully have a little bit of time. I can show you how where some other information I got on that as well. Uh, yeah, of course. That's it. Yeah, that's that. And so as a aerial photographer and gunner, 
he likely had parachute experience in the Navy. At the very least, classroom training on, hey, if the plane's shot down, yeah. you're going to have to jump out. Here's what to do. Yeah, I, I assume that. And what I did was I got, I got hold of um, some individuals that they restored old aircraft. And there was a, there's an aircraft. That's a Beechcraft aircraft at Twin Beach. Eight, ten passengers, something like that. Standard naval reconnaissance plane, uh, late 40s. Uh, you're not going to probably see too many of these flying today. There might, you know, some third world nation might still have them. I sent away to these um, individuals that, that used to fly them, former uh, naval officers, aerial photographers, different things. And I got this email back because I, I think the question I asked was, would, did you guys have parachutes on those planes? Mm -hmm. you know, or where I knew you had them. Did you wear them? What was the deal? And he wrote back to me, uh, this gentleman said, the air crew would wear parachute harnesses, but the chest packs were stowed in the cabin. And the SNB PRC-45J, which is the Beechcraft, they stowed quick-attached chest pack parachutes on the back of each of the forward cabin seats on bungees and hooks, and the aft seat chute was stowed under the seat of the floor. Um, pilots stowed their chest packs on the shelf right across from the entry door. The door could be jettisoned to bail out. So that whole line there, the air crew would wear parachute harnesses. We know D.B. Cooper was very skilled at putting on that harness because when the parachutes came, Tina Muckle said he put it on very quickly. And I think Martin actually mentions in his podcast that he, he, I think he gave it to his dad or had somebody that knew harnesses try it on, and it took a while to put the parachute on. It's not easy to do. I put on parachutes, that's not, that's not as simple as, as it may seem. Nowadays, I mean, some of the rigs are you know quick, but still it takes a little bit of time. D.B. Cooper put that on very quickly, which is indicative of his experience with, with a harness. But some of what he did in terms of the, the jump were not indicative of somebody with a lot of parachute experience. So who has, who has experience with harnesses, but actually not with jumping? Air crews. It'd be like being on a boat. How many times have you put on a life preserver? How many times have you actually gone overboard, right? That's a great example. That's so a great example. He... That was that's the piece about the the, the parachutes that that sort of made sense. Um, so yeah, he he would have had he would have had experience. Another interesting tidbit: I was walking through. Um, I was on I was on base a couple months ago. And there was a gentleman selling books. He was a retired naval captain. And he had been a pilot. I think he flew flew reconnaissance, seventies eighties. And we just started a chat, and I, I asked him, I said, you know, during survival training, did you ever, would you ever parachuted? And he joined, he probably joined in the early 50s, um, and he said, he told me a little bit about survival school. He said, because he had been enlisted first before he became an officer. He said, during, during naval survival school down in Florida, they said they dropped them in, the, in the, the swamp for a week, and that was it. They had to survive, you know. And they did. I mean, they, whatever food and maps they had, they made it. And I said, well, how did you learn parachuting? And he said, well, what we did was there would be a boat, and we would wear the parachute, and it would be just like parasailing, and we would run, and the boat would take off, and they would go into the air, and at 1,500 feet or whatever, they would release, and they would go into the water, and that's how they would practice a water landing, which is very dangerous. Water landings are dangerous. You have to do special practice to, to do water landings. It's not. I've trained in water landings. I don't ever want to do it. It's uh, you get wrapped up in the cords. But the, the, the Navy air crews had to do this, and um, 
I found that kind of interesting. So now, now that, that really made me think, I've got a guy that knows harnesses, not really sure he was a, a really experienced parachutist, but he knows harnesses, he's been in the air, he's done all the, the little things, but he never really, he may never have actually had a jump. And um, that, was, that was just one big piece for me that sort of is indicative of, if, if you look at Larry Carr's profile, he says, D.B. Cooper knew the, I think he knew the brush strokes, the broad strokes, but he, he didn't get into the details so well. That's a normal behavior. I mean, a lot of us are like that. Jack of all trades, master of none. I think he had enough experience putting on the harness. He had been in the air. He had just never maybe jumped out of a 727. I still think he was at Elsinore in 1971. That's probably the one thing I'd like to know is, is I'd like to get hold of those cards and see what the alias was or whatever. But um, my guess is... If it is, if D.B. Cooper was William Smith, I understand he may not be. Could be anybody. I'm not going to lose any sleep if somebody else comes up with another suspect. We know there will be. Every year there's a few. Uh, but you have an individual that had aviation experience, had parachutist experience, um, or parachute training. I think he had a, a certain mindset, may have lived in, in a movie at times in his in his life. He thought it was, you know, the James Bond type in in like all of us may, may think some days. That's, that's why I think some of the, what, why he looked the way he did with the black hair and everything. Uh, that, that sort of led me to think, all right, been around planes, he knew fueling, he knew aerodynamics, uh, knew parachutes, he was comfortable around machines, and uh, it all fits the whole D.B. Cooper kind of profile, so to say. Certain profiles. Some people believe he was a commando. Others think he was a smoke jumper. Others think he was an experienced skydiver. Could have been any of those things. But he could also have been a naval, you know, been in naval aviation. Could have been, could have been an air crew crewman as well on, a, on an army plane. Who knows? So. All right. So William Smith has the qualification to do it. Yes. But why would he do it? I think he had, I think he had a grudge against the airline industry and the transportation industry. And... I'll do my best to summarize how this whole thing, how I think it went down. He he started work for the railroad in high school in the mid-40s. His father worked for the railroad. Uh, Dan Clare worked for the railroad. Dan Clare's father worked for the railroads. This was a major industry in, in the Northeast at the time. At one point, the Pennsylvania Railroad, which was became the parent company of the Lehigh Valley Railroad, was the largest corporation in the world, not the United States, the world. Uh, 18, whatever it was, they became the biggest. There's a reason there is a monopoly square that says Pennsylvania Railroad. Baltimore <laughs> and Ohio, Reading Railroad. Like there, there's a reason. The railroads were big. The, um, if you worked for the railroad, you were, you know, you were an important person. They, they moved passengers. They moved freight. During World War II, we would not have been able to survive without, without the railroads. World War II essentially wore out the railroads, literally, damaged the, the locomotives, the track, and I mean, there's just so much traffic that went on. And there's a whole confluence of events in the 40s and 50s that led to the demise of railroads. Coal was a big, uh, big product for the railroads. Eventually coal becomes replaced in terms for heating by natural gas. We have nuclear, eventually solar, but that comes many years later. So these, these large companies, these, these, these are Fortune, you know, at the time, Pennsylvania Railroad would probably be like a Fortune 20. We're talking General Electric size. I mean, this is a big, these are big organizations. The locomotives are made by General Electric, General Motors. Post-World War II, we come into 
the jet age. Airlines start to take passenger traffic. Airlines start to take mail traffic from the trains. So in the 1940s, you traveled where you lived. Your car could get a certain distance. There were no interstates. There's no Eisenhower interstate system at the time. He doesn't get elected to be president until 1952. Um, railroads are how you move freight. Railroads are how you move passengers. As the, as the airlines start to take more passengers, as highways are built, as regulations come in that affect the railroads to the benefit of, of truck drivers, uh, St. Lawrence Seaway opens up in 1956, roughly, I think. Hard to believe, but before the St. Lawrence Seaway in, in the Northeast in Canada opened up, if you wanted to get a ship from Europe or Africa to, say, Milwaukee or Chicago, you would have to send it across the ocean, it would have to stop in, say, New York City, unload, get on a train, go all the way to Milwaukee, to Chicago, to Cleveland, you name all those, those cities there on the Great Lakes. Once the seaway opened up, a ship could go through the seaway, through the locks, and get all the way to those cities. No, you no longer need the trains. You still need trains, but not as much. So what happens is you see a demise of the railroads. And in order for the railroads to survive, they have to start to merge. And in 1962, the Pennsylvania Railroad took over the Lehigh Valley Railroad. Uh, they bought it. Still, Lehigh's kind of stayed the same. So now you have your, your, your railroad was used to be one of the, the big ones. Imagine your sports team is Super Bowl winner or whatever. And now all of a sudden, you have to merge with another team. Uh, they, get, they get taken over lose a little bit of their identity. So I can imagine Bill is on that railroad. He's worked it his whole life. His father's worked it. It might be a little bit of a blow to him. And what year did he start to work at the railroad? 19, I think he, he joined in high school, 1946, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, no, I'm sorry. He didn't. No, he, I think he probably joined in 45 because he joined, he joined just as, the, as World War II was ending. So I think he worked there. Then went off to serve in the Navy, then he came back. Because on his naval enlistment records, it says where you work. This gets to the grudge. 1968, the Pennsylvania Railroad merges with the New York Central Railroad. These were the two largest railroads in the Northeast, maybe in the United States. They form what's called the Penn Central Railroad. And you have to understand certain things to, to get this. Some of the listeners may not completely follow along or even be interested in it. But imagine the New York Yankees and Boston Red Sox decide to make one team. They can't perform anymore, there's not enough money. Or the Philadelphia, it's more like the Phillies and the Yankees or the Phillies and the Mets become one team. You have New York Central Railroad and Pennsylvania Railroad. They form and they become one company. This is 1968. They become what's called the Penn Central Railroad. Penn Central was not just a railroad, it was huge. They owned Six Flags, they owned a lot of, uh, a lot of buildings in New, York, in New York City. New York Rangers hockey team was Penn Central. It's a massive organization. Everyone thought things would be great. Uh, unfortunately, the two, two, the, the two companies, their, uh, their policies were different, their procedures were different, the way they thought, the way they acted were very different. You had, it was almost like blue collar meets someone with a, you know, a, a Ivy League pedigree. They're just two very different railroads. The computer systems didn't speak to each other. Two years later, the company goes, Penn Central goes bankrupt. It's the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history up until that time. Largest ever. So now you have 1970, a massive, massive bankruptcy. Why does this relate to D.B. Cooper? Well, many people say the Boeing layoffs are what caused D.B. Cooper's grudge. The bankruptcy of the largest company in the United States is mountains and mountains above a single company laying off some people. It's just, it's night and day. You don't hear about it because it was an East Coast event. 
when that company merged in 1968, the Penn Central stock sold for about $84 a share. Within two years during the bankruptcy, it went down to less than $6 a share. So imagine you're invested, you're invested in, the, in the stock, in your retirement plan, your railroad, all this. Penn Central files bankruptcy. Bankruptcy, bankruptcy court says, keep you, to keep you alive, solvent, or whatever, we're going we're gonna to say you don't have to pay your debts and you don't have to pay some of these other railroads. Well, Lehigh Valley Railroad got pushed to the, to the, to the side. I think Penn Central filed bankruptcy around June. I think within a month, Lehigh Valley ended up filing bankruptcy because they couldn't get paid for their cars, locomotives, and, and everything else. So now you're William Smith. You've worked for the railroad since you were a kid. Your father worked for the railroad. Your friends worked for the railroad. You've seen it fall apart as time goes on. This is your life. This would be the equivalent of, you know, U.S. Air, United Airlines going bankrupt. It was, it was big time. And now you're in bankruptcy. This is 1970. And uh, the final kind of death blow was May of 71. Government comes in and says, not only are we, you know, we're going to take, essentially take over the, the, the railroads. Um, we're going to give, we're going to give passenger traffic to this new company called Amtrak. Now, if you're an executive of the railroads, this is good because passenger traffic is a losing proposition. The money is, is mainly coming from freight. But if you're a worker, you worked on the rail yard, you're, you know, that, that's your life. Passenger traffic is pretty important. Like, no one, you know, the movies that are out there, you see people inside a train and it's nice and they're drinking. You used to be able to get a haircut on a train. You can, you could go cross country, you could sleep on a train. Passenger traffic was big. That was the elegant part of, of the railroads. And now, boom, Amtrak comes in, takes all the passenger traffic from, you know, in the Northeast corridor away from the railroads and your livelihood is now gone. Possibly a little bit upset. Well, who do you blame? You could blame the airlines, right? Could blame the transportation industry because had the airlines not come into business and had there not been regulations against the railroads, had there not been the highway system and trucks and everything else, the railroads still would have been the number one, you know, number one team out there. And now they're sort of just, this is now 1971 and they're relegated to kind of the, you know, second place, maybe uh, JV squad, so to say. So. Your pension's possibly gone. You've worked your entire life. Uh, your, all your friends, relatives, everybody else. You might lose your job. You're married. You got some kids. I don't know. Maybe you want to make a statement. Maybe you need some money. So why not hijack a plane? Did they all lose their pension? No. Some at the time, at the time, there was the belief that they would lose their pensions. You can go to my site and see a good YouTube video about some of the, the old timers that worked for the Pennsylvania Railroad. There's still some pissed off people out there um, that, that went through that. It worked out. It panned out. In 1976, uh, bankruptcies ended. It became Conrail, which then became CSX. And what you would know now is we would consider one of the big four railroads in the United States would be CSX. That's why I think he didn't need to spend his money because within a couple of years he realized hold on a second, I've still got a good, I've still got a job, I'm still going to be okay. Bill Smith ended up working for the railroad until 1993, retired, I think, in whatever, he was 65 at the time. Was that, yeah, born in 28, yeah. So. 45 to 93, that's a pretty good run. Oh, yeah, long time, yep. <laughs> Imagine that, one job in, you know, a few different locations. Uh, I think it just takes a lot of dedication. I don't think our generation could do that now. I couldn't. I've had a lot of jobs. I like the job I'm in now, you know, military, but... Wasn't, you know, came in, got out, came back. So, but uh, yeah, to say one place for, for that long is impressive. So 
so you can understand why somebody might be mad and you know who are you gonna who are you gonna be mad at well the airlines is a good choice right so if he's mad at the transportation industry specifically the airline why does he choose flight 305 why does he choose a flight from portland to seattle well we know he wants a 727 because he's going to jump out of it so i think his choices are 727 or uh, dc dc9 maybe one of the mcdonald douglas variants i think if you're going to hijack a plane don't do it in your backyard so he's going to go far enough away um so if you live in new jersey portland oregon's a, a long trip it's about as far as it gets. Yeah, you don't get much further. It was yeah, took me took me a while to get out here. That's for sure. I'm on my trip. So, <laughs> um, and I, I think, I think Portland to Seattle was was a good choice. I mean, he could have taken a 727. Hanneman took a 727 in Allentown, Pennsylvania, which would have been right down the street from from William Smith. He ended up flying that to where Honduras or whatever. But I think he he chose. He wanted to go to Portland, somewhere very far away. He had some familiarity with the area. Dan Clare had been stationed uh, here during World War II at Fort Lewis. I also found a cousin of Bill Smith that had actually gotten married out here. I'd be willing to bet he came to the wedding. So I think he knew enough about the area. It was like, hey, I'll do it. Could have gotten a 727 in San Diego, but where are you going to jump? Where are you going to fly to? you gotta, you got to have some, some plan. I think he chose Northwest Airlines specifically because um, – and this is where this is where the story will get a little maybe a little crazy. The movie North by Northwest that had Cary Grant that came out in 1959. That Northwest, the North by Northwest, some believe the Northwest is because of Northwest Airlines. And if you let me show you this here on this, Cary Grant actually is he goes he goes on Northwest Airlines in the movie. And I really I firmly believe that. So there. That's Cary Grant. That's a D.B. Cooper composite. Looks pretty similar, doesn't it? Very similar. The hair. We know that. You know, we know that he went into the. He. he Bill Mitchell said he had really, like, slicked back hair. It was, it was. It was almost comical. So why would you? Why would you blacken your hair like he did? I think he was. I think he really was trying to look like Cary Grant. Cary Grant's mother's name in the in the movie was Clara, just like in Max Gunther's book. He drinks bourbon. There's a manhunt for a killer. Um, when did the killing happen in the movie? Well, it was right the day before Thanksgiving. A whole bunch of other information. There he is buying the ticket. He's got the sunglasses. You got the New York Central Railroad. You have a beautiful blonde co-star, a la Tina Mucklow, lighting cigarettes, hides in the lavatory. And there he is, Northwest Orient, in the movie right there. Northwest Orient Airlines ticket counter. So I got a feeling he, that was where... That, that's where he got – I'm not sure you're saying he got the idea from Cary Grant, but – The when inspiration. It, the inspiration when it came time to picking an airline, um, why not? Why not go for – why not go for Northwest? Make it – make this a, a big – you know, make it a big bang. Um, yeah, I've read that article on your site a couple yeah. of times, and some of the connections are really fascinating. Like when he's holding up that newspaper and you pointed out, hey, look, that newspaper is November 25th. Yeah. And when did, from the law. Yeah, when yeah. the newspaper come out on the D.B. Cooper thing? November 25th. 25th. Uh, and the, North by Northwest, I, I highly recommend the movie. It's not Star Wars. It's not The Avengers. It's an older film. It, 
but it's fun. I was in South Dakota traveling. My dad mentioned that, you know, they were at Mount Rushmore. So I bought, I got the movie. I had no idea that this was going to be D.B. Cooper. No connection whatsoever. I watched it and I'm thinking, wow, he looks like Cary Grant. Dark skin, the eyes, dapper, right around the same age. Talking about jumping out of an airplane. You've got this airplane scene in the movie that uh, became the inspiration for one of the scenes in, in a James Bond movie from Russia with Love. North by Northwest is considered the basically the first James Bond type movie uh, that came out before the James Bond movies, and uh, it would have been well known. It's still a very well known movie. I think he might have liked that that film. You've got a mom, you know mom's name is Clara. The main character gets drunk off bourbon. The first scene that's how the whole thing starts. They he gets a they the, these these characters get him drunk. It's a it's a um, Miscommunication, so to say, they have the wrong guy. So I don't want to give away the, the film. But I, I'd already, I'd already done everything I had done before I found the movie. This was just like a little extra piece. So I'm smiling myself, thinking if I heard somebody talking about this, I'd, you know, I'd be looking for a straitjacket right now for him. So <laughs> I, believe me, I, I understand the, I understand some of the hesitation I have in myself. So uh, I, I, I do. I think he, I think he was a fan of Cary Grant. Looks like him. He's got the, the look. There's other movies too that Cary Grant was in that, you know, he played. And to catch a thief, his alias was Mr. Smith from Portland, Oregon. Same actress was in that movie. That same actress who played Clara was in the movie Airport in 1970. What's the theme for that movie? Guy gets on a plane, he's mad at the world, he brings on a bomb and he blows himself up. Just like D.B. Cooper. That was only a year before the, the, the other film came out. Cary Grant was not in that movie. Dean Martin was in that movie who looks an awful lot like... Cary Grant with the the swarthy complexion, and that's a whole nother that's a whole nother piece too. They've you know people have said, well, he must have been Latin, he must have been Indian, so on and so forth, or American Indian. Uh, if you're from Eastern Europe, you're you 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 will have a swarthy complexion. It's Hungarian, Bulgarian, Turkish, Italy, Greece, any of it. Um, I mean, my some of my ancestors are from that. You get you get a certain look. Smith, Bill Smith. Part of some of his ancestry is Hungarian, hence the dark skin, the dark eyes. So, you know, the, the population of American Indians in 1971 in the United States was was slim. He had no accent, according to Tina Mucklow, no Spanish accent. So, um, could could he have been somebody Latin? Yeah, possible, it's possible. But another piece for you know William Smith fitting that kind of that swarthy complexion, a la you know Cary Grant, Dean Martin look. And I'm not that old. So don't, yeah, I don't. These guys were the past long before I was even probably even born. My my favorite movies are, are modern day movies, but uh, yeah, so maybe some of the old timers in the Cooper case would be interested in picking up the movie again. I was talking to my folks about that because I just stayed at their place, and I was uh, we had said we were going to watch it, but we didn't get around to it. So yeah. I I promise you, I will watch that yeah. movie. Yeah. Do you think there's any connection to the Dan Cooper comic book? Or do you think that's just no? A I, I, no, I think it's a coincidence. I think there's zero connection to it. It's my opinion. Okay. Too, it's too too many. You can go down that route and find out that yeah, they sold the comic book at some store or whatever. But if you're making up a fake name, maybe yeah, maybe maybe it was a combination of Dan Cooper lived down the street from him in Jersey City, which I've I've mentioned. There was a kid in his high school. Killed in World War II, named Dan Cooper, collected stamps, was in the orchestra, did the exact same things that Bill Smith did, lived down the street from him. I think that I think that's the Dan Cooper. Could he have also looked at the comic book? Sure. I mean, now you have, I'm looking for a name. 
let me be Dan Cooper because of this kid in my neighborhood and the comic book. I just don't see that. I just don't see an American kid from from New Jersey having that that book. Um, if this was if this was today and somebody wanted to be an X Men character or an Avenger or whoever, possibly, but no, I, I don't. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, and the, and the comic's not that old, so a, a guy in his forties wouldn't be wouldn't be reading a comic book, especially back then. Yeah, I hope not. All right, so let's let's skip over the hijacking part because we all know those details. Sure. So he jumps out of the back of the plane. Is the drop zone accurate? Where do you think he jumps out that's, of the plane? That's, yeah, the, there's, a, there's a number of drop zones, so depending on what you believe is accurate. I think he landed, um, you know, if you, if you look at the map here, I think he lands somewhere south of Ariel uh, between Battleground and Orchards. Based off the time, based off the placard, based off the speed, based off the terrain, I think he, he, he if he knew which Victor Airways he was on, which he may not have, if he was on 23, if he, if he knew 23 was on 23, he would have known the plane would have turned. Uh, he probably would have seen Lake Merwin Dam. He might have seen Interstate 5. And I've flown in here, it was cloudy, so I'm, I'm with the guys. If there was clouds, he probably wouldn't have seen much, but he could have seen a little bit, enough lights to say, you know, I've been going for 30 miles and there's zero, there's nothing here. And then all of a sudden I see a light, so that's probably indicative of me getting closer. I think he wanted to jump before Portland, because after Portland, it's just too much wilderness. There's no, there's no way out. You know, he, he knows the direction he's going at south. He knows the general speed. He knows his altitude. He knows how long he's going to be in the air. He knows because of the mountains and the corridor that he can't go too far east or, or too far west. So he has a general idea where he's going to be. Now, even if he knew exactly where he was, he's not going to be able to pinpoint a landing zone, even with a perfect parachute. But I think he'd be within a couple miles. So I believe he pulled um, around 8, 810 or 812. And looking at the flight, FBI flight map, these aren't my, you know, I didn't write that in. 2005 is uh, 805 p.m., 806, so on and so forth. I think that puts him right about uh, between Battleground and Orchards. And, you know, like I said earlier, if he, had, if he had landed over at Mount Hood, he would have been in trees. I think in this area, there's a very good chance that he went into a, uh, into a field. Now, how he got away, that's, that's a whole other story. Uh, there's different, different scenarios for that one. But, yeah, I, I, I believe that's your DZ between Battlegrounds and or Battleground and Orchards. Uh, I've, I think it's accurate. Again, if he landed at Tina Bar, if he landed uh, at Ariel, okay, got it. I'm not, I'm not married to, to Battleground and Orchards. I just think that I think he timed it in, in a general sense to, to get out right about there. And I've read the 302s. The the engineer, uh, Harold Anderson, said he could, they could see the lights of Portland. They knew they knew they were coming. So imagine if you're you're a naval aviator, you've been in a plane enough times, you're comfortable. He's probably looking out the window, or he's on the back of the, he's sitting on the steps. He's starting to see civilization come come his way. It's been nothing for 30 or 40 or 50 miles. He knows Tacoma. He's past Tacoma. Probably Lake Merwin Dam. Even if he doesn't see those, he's he's maybe timing it somehow. I've heard people say, "Well, nobody saw a watch." Okay, okay. So what? Yeah, probably had a watch somewhere. Maybe it was maybe it was wearing. They didn't see it. Maybe he had a stopwatch. Those the the 1940s aren't today. There's no GPS. So if he's in a plane training in the Navy, they would have had to use, you know, 
they would have stopwatches, dead reckoning, you name it. There's, there's not. They might have had some radar in the back, but the, even radar was was rudimentary at that time. It really had only come out ten years before from the British during World War II. So a lot more, a lot harder to to, to operate back then. So I think as a as an aerial, aerial reconnaissance man and a gunner, he was used to being on planes. He was used to looking out planes. He was used to seeing things from. 10,000 feet from 15,000 feet, so on and so forth. So I believe he had a general concept of, of where he was going to go. And it's not that hard. If you're, I say it's not that hard. If you leave Seattle and you're going to Portland, there's only one major city on the way, and that's Tacoma. And so the whole concept of him knowing the area because he recognized Tacoma, well, what else is going to be down there? If you fly from Portland to, and SeaTac is south of Seattle, so what's the, what's the next city you're going to see leaving Portland? It's going to be Tacoma. Olympia is way too small to, to, to hit the radar and, you know, to, to, be, to be totally visible and it's too far, too far west. So that whole fallacy that he was from the area because he recognized Tacoma, I mean, come on, you know, it's like flying from, you know, I don't know, Pittsburgh to Philadelphia, what are you going to see? Nothing. Your next city is, is Philadelphia, right? So yeah, and he, he at the very least would have looked at some maps before. Of course, he would have done. A, yeah, he, he would have done a map reconnaissance. This is a copy of a map from that time frame. It was just, uh, you know, gas stations used to sell these maps. I was ordered on eBay. So you fly here from Portland north. This is SeaTac. That's Tacoma. That's the only city you're going to see. There's no other landmarks there. So when he's flying over Tacoma and he mentions, I think it was the T, and he said, "Oh, it looks like Tacoma down there." Okay, cool, yeah. People have taken that to say, well, he must be from the area because he recognized Tacoma. It doesn't necessarily mean, what else are you gonna see? What other city is there? And you can see here where there's really no, this is, not, this is from 71, so there's no, there's no real landmarks until you get here where the, the dog leg happens. Um, not necessarily dog, no, 45 degree turn. Did you say this map is from 71? It's a copy of a map from 1971, yeah. That's oh, a gas really? station map from yeah, 1971. That's really interesting that you bought a map from 71. I like that. Yeah, it was like 10 bucks on eBay. So if you're, you're D.B. Cooper, you get hold of a gas station map. So, I mean, what do you see on the map? You know, you see Fort Lewis, you see McCord Air Force Base, all these landmarks that some researchers have said, well, that, that indicates he was from the area because he knew where McCord Air Force Base was on the map or Fort Lewis. It's not hard to figure out. I saw on the D.B. Cooper forum recently, and I, I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but... There is a rail line yes. from uh, Chalachi Prairie, which is just south of Lake Merwin. I mean, yep. just across the Lewis River. Um, and it goes all the way towards Vancouver and then kind of makes a turn up north and goes right past Tina Bar. Yes. Yep. Uh, he'd have to cross Lake River, right. but Lake River's not big. I mean, yeah. you can you could throw a rock across Lake yeah. River. Yeah. Um, there are places where you could probably walk across it. Right. And that same railroad, which was uh, was part of the Chalachi Railroad, which I think was a subsidiary of, at, in 1970 it became the Burlington Northern, but you had Great Northern Railway and Northern Pacific, which merged with Burlington Railroad, Burlington, Chicago, and Quincy, which was out in Chicago and Iowa, uh, huge railroad. That's now Burlington Northern Santa Fe. The Chalachi Spur, the railroad there, went right through Battleground and Orchards. So if he landed in Battleground, between Battlegrounds to the north and then south becomes Orchards towards Portland, and he was close enough to that rail, he could have gotten on, he could have gotten on a train there. Now the I, I know the, 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 the article the articles that have come out and that said, hey, he must have got on a train, I don't necessarily believe he jumped on a moving train. 
I believe he, if he got on a train, which if you're a railroad man, you would have tried to get on a train, he would have got it at a rail yard or he would have got it when it was going very, very slow, coming into a rail yard or leaving a rail yard. Now, this is Thanksgiving. I would think he, if he got on a train, he got into a boxcar, wrapped himself in one of the parachutes, standard naval survival training, waited out the night, took the train wherever. If it went past Tina Bar, who knows? Maybe that's maybe he had to pay somebody some money and they threw it out later. They got uh, you know they they got a they got conscience all of a sudden. So that's a um, that's a possibility they got on the Chalachi, uh section right there. He may not have even needed a train. He may have had he may have had a radio to do the jump by yourself to have no one. It's a big gamble. Now the benefit of doing it and not telling anybody is you don't have anybody to talk you out of it, especially your wife who's yeah. going to say, "Hey, I don't think that's such a good idea," right? But if you land and you break your leg or an ankle or you twist something because these aren't, you know, these are these are survival parachutes. The intent is to get you out of the plane open and save your life, not necessarily protect your limbs he he would have trouble getting out of there which sort of makes me think maybe he had some help maybe he didn't but i would i would probably lean towards having uh you know being on being on a train i got a timetable here yeah all right so this is this is a railroad timetable from burlington northern you see the date november the 14th 1971 imagine you're a, just a lay person trying to figure out this timetable that's just one page. <laughs> and the, 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 the listeners can't see that, but there's probably, I don't know how many lines, 50 and it's font eight. That's just a couple subdivisions. And here, and here. But if you know, if you know trains and you know railroads, you can interpret this. You know what speed they're going, where they're going to be, whether it's passenger, whether it's freight, what direction it's going to go in. Um, if you don't have an escape plan, Railroad's a pretty good option if you know trains, if you know railroads, like Bill would have known. And if he had help from, it's possible he had help from a group out here because the Burlington Northern group that I just mentioned, the, the Great Northern and Northern Pacific, they had just as much history, just as much camaraderie out here, and they had emerged to survive because there wasn't enough money. So now you have potentially West Coast help. All speculation, I'll never be able to prove it unless somebody comes forward and says, yeah, we kind of helped them out. We picked up a guy, you know, at whatever rail yard. But $200,000 in 1971 goes a long way. Hijacks the plane on Wednesday night. By Monday morning, he could be back in New Jersey working on the railroad. It's a stretch, though, because he has to get out there as well. So how do you get to Portland by Wednesday evening, November the 24th, and then be back at work the following Monday? It's, it's a tough one to pull off. So he would have been out of work probably for, those, for some of those days. And if he was hurt, which I believe he might have been, especially if you believe Max Gunther's book, he might not even been at work. Um, that's a challenge now in being in 2019. There's just not a lot of those individuals left that are even going to remember. You know, I don't remember some of my own injuries, never mind, never mind somebody else's from 20 years ago. You know, in these cases, we're talking 50 years, right? So Yeah, 50 yep. years ago. Yeah. yeah, it'll be 50 in, uh, what, two years from now, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We'll see where we are in two years. I'll be retired from the case. This is, this is, the last, this is, this is my last here. I, gotta, I, gotta, I, I took a break for a while, so this is co coincidental. I'm out here, we're chatting, and then I'll go back to my regular life. You don't think we'll be sitting here again 10 years from now talking about this? I've, we'll be sitting having a beer somewhere, but <laughs> won't be, yeah, won't be doing a podcast. Did you see on 302's 
released recently, 11.30 p.m. on the night of the hijacking, there was a grocery convenience store break-in outside yeah. Battleground. I saw that. That was cool. Um, Flyjack's done a lot of good research. Oh, he's, he's been, done so yeah. much great work. I've tried going through those documents, yeah. but yeah. it's just painful. So yeah. much is redacted, and it, they're difficult to read. You're not sure if you're reading something important or yeah. not. Yeah, he found... he. F I have some old documentation that shows that you don't need any special knowledge of the 727. If you read airplane magazines or, or got Jane's encyclopedia, that you could have figured stuff out about the aft stairs. Flyjack actually found a document from like 1963 that specifically says, you know, and it came from a magazine too. This wasn't a secret document. This was from a, you know, Aviation Weekly or something. Um, so yeah, he's had, he's had a lot of good information. I read that. That's pretty interesting. The, there was a break in just south of what Ariel and the footprints were service hiking boots. boots or service boots, and the individual took supplies but no money or something like that. So beef jerky, beef cigarettes, jerky. and gloves. Yeah, kind of cool, right? I mean, I don't know how. I say how it was missed, not to be critical, but it just it goes to show that prior to having access like we have with the internet, it's like the Elsinore documents. Left hand was not talking to the right hand. It's just it's very difficult to connect the dots. So somebody somebody with no general knowledge of the case might have looked at that and been like, oh, there's a break and no big deal. If Ralph Hemmelsbach had gotten that, maybe he would have said, oh, wow, this, this, is, the, this is the one piece of information that I need. Yeah. Um, I, I do enjoy seeing those. I've stopped. When the, when, the, when the 302s come out, I've stopped sifting through 500 pages because it's a lot of redactions and then it's a lot of stories of my uncle said he wanted to hijack a plane or some somebody saw they were watching i think a perry mason show and somebody in the jury box looked like db cooper yep. and they investigated that person which what's crazy is now that the case is closed there's been some fairly i would say somewhat legitimate suspects that have come out the fbi is not touching any of these individuals if this was 10 or 15 years ago they would be all over them but resources and and what we talked about earlier just uh, they can't they can't do it um but yeah, I, I found that very interesting. And like you probably, I, I've learned to when to check the boards and what to, if I know it's a back and forth on the flight path, I've stopped kind of paying attention to that. Right. But if all of a sudden I see somebody's like, oh, hey, thanks to whoever, there's new documents out, I'll, I'll take a look and, and, and do that. But yeah, you're sifting through suspect after suspect after suspect going, but this is not, I'm more interested in, I've I've FOIAed Max Gunther information. They, you know, claim they don't have it, but um, I'm more interested in the process now, which those 302s don't get into. They don't get into how things were done, what dots were connected, what people were thinking, feeling, so on and, and so forth. So, uh, how many pages are out there? Twenty, thirty thousand. It's just becomes it's too many. I've read a lot. Yeah, I read I, I read the originals. Thirty thousand are out. I've probably been. I'd probably get maybe 10,000 pages, maybe maybe more. I'm sure somebody's read them all. George or maybe Flyjack, I don't know. Sounds like Flyjack's yeah, read yeah. them all. I like reading the summaries, yeah. It yeah. seems like he's read them all by yeah. the next morning, too, which is shocking. He's got a lot of information, yeah. You try to get him on. If he, have you tried? I have tried to get him on. He said he has a little bit more work to do, so yeah. Flyjack, if you're listening, uh, get to work so you can come on the show. I, li I like Hannum as a suspect. He, um, he's a Pennsylvania guy. Allentown, uh, served in the military, took a lot of guts doing what he did. So um, 
I don't think there was a conspiracy. I don't. Uh, I don't think it was CIA. Um, none of that just makes any sense. It sounds fun, but I think it's just. I think it was regular, regular guys and confluence of events. A bunch of things went right at the right time. It could never happen again. You know, it's like the 1980 Olympic hockey team. You got one shot. It happened once. They'll never. You know, you can't duplicate that that event. So I think. I think. I think whoever did it got very, very lucky. Getting on the plane, getting the money, getting the parachutes, getting out of the plane, surviving, getting away, never getting caught. Uh, I mean, that's that's a story in itself. So. Yeah, I mean, he never got caught, and everything seemed to go his way. Right. Uh, he was in control of the situation the whole time. He yep. appeared to be the boss. He never um, was forced to do something really he didn't want to. I mean, you could talk about that they had to stop in Reno to refuel. That wasn't what he wanted, right. but— he knew he, he knew he was going to be out of the plane. Yeah, he, William Smith was a yardmaster, which is they, they run the railroad yard. You're talking thousands and thousands of trains, box cars, flat cars, gondolas, tank cars, you name it. The best description I've read about a yardmaster is it's the uh, railroad equivalent of an air traffic controller. Okay, so about somebody who could be calm on on a on an airplane in a situation like that. So, um, what? proof do you need to push this over the edge if you could get one thing i just need this what would say to you it is 100 percent william smith i'd say 100 percent would be dna which i don't I, it's questionable whether they even have it if it, it's a degraded sample i think if they had if they really had it they could they could make it happen uh next would be the fingerprints which again i think are questionable did he leave fingerprints you go through all this effort to hijack a plane and then leave fingerprints. I'm suspecting, I, I believe he might have used maybe airplane glue or nail polish, put them on his fingerprints. He, ma he made sure he didn't leave, leave fingerprints. Uh, I'm not even sure the know. FBI has his fingerprints. Yeah. I think know. they don't know either. Yeah. They and they're not going to tell us either. The, the, the government didn't tell us about the tie for 30-something years. I mean, this is the, the biggest piece of evidence of the case, and we didn't hear about it for 30 years. Maybe there's another holdback. So I would say DNA, the tie, I'm sorry, DNA, uh, fingerprints, or a $20 bill. You can find a parachute, all the rest, but that's not going to help. That may reopen the case. I hope, I hope the guys that are searching for the parachutes find something. That would be great. Open the case again. But tw like legitimate $20 bills um, or the ticket stub, something, the something that stub he, would be a you good know, one. He's, he saved. And when somebody was cleaning out the house or he put in a safety deposit box, that's that. Now, it, it has to, you know, if you found a $20 bill in your grandfather's attic, that might not mean he's D.B. Cooper. But if William Smith's family finds one, then that would, that would put it over the edge, I think. Um, would any of these, are any of these, these things going to occur? I doubt it. I think it's going to take the FBI to come forward and say, hey, we, we believe it's this individual. We've, we've done, I mean, they, have, they can do a lot more than I can do. Or the family comes and says, Absolutely. We remember Thanksgiving that year. He's talked about it. The Max Gunther book just has so many connections. I think I sent you that, that list of, and we're talking, there's a lake in New Jersey. There's the names. There's the, the railroad. There's you know the bankruptcy. There's the heart disease. There's the birthday. There's the phone calls from New York City. I mean, all this stuff adds up to Paul Cotton, for instance, in the book. Uh, if you, 
you know, as I said earlier, there's, there's, three, there's three names in the book that are made up. Paul Cotton, Clara, and Dan LeClaire. We've already talked about Dan LeClaire potentially being Dan LeClaire. If you remember in the book, his alias was also Paul Cotton. Paul Cotton, these are, these are, these are ancestry records. So I just did a search for Paul Cotton. All right, there's a Paul Cotton in New Jersey, Orange County, around the same birth year as William Smith. There's only a couple Paul Cottons in the country at the time. Didn't think a whole lot of it. But then as I started to look at the details of the actual census, this is handwritten, you can see Paul Cotton lived in Bloomfield, New Jersey, right down the street from William Smith's wife. Bluefield's not a big place at the time, 50,000 people maybe. You have these names of, you know, if you're going to make up a story, why not use real names? You'll use your brother's name or sister's or friends down the street or whatever. Um, there's a lot in that book. So I, I think if, if, if a family member came forward and said, yeah, all this matches and there's all those little details, we could then say, yes, these two individuals are in the book. So if you're in the book, then the next connection would be how to connect that person to be D.B. Cooper. I believe it's the individuals in the book and they are D.B. Cooper. It is possible that they are the individuals in the, in the book and they're not D.B. Cooper. It could be that they're not in the book. I think the only person that's going to get any more information on the book is probably going to be Martin. He's still, Martin Andrade, he's still looking into this. So if, it, if, if my guys aren't the guys, he'll, I think he'll keep going and eventually find who he believes are, are the people. Have you spoken to the relatives of William Smith or Dan Clare? No, I've had no contact with William Smith's family. I've had contact with Dan Clare's family. And how did that go? It actually went pretty well. I talked to, um, just to protect some of the privacy, I, I, I confirmed some of the things in the book. Um, talked to his son. It all, all matches up, the disappearance, the injury, the car wreck, I mean, all these things. He, there's probably how many, 10 of us that even know, five that even know the book, the details. So you know it, Martin. I think uh, Dice is a guy on the, the board. I think he, re he read the book too. Um, you know, Dan son thought, yeah, he knows his father's not D.B. Cooper, but he said he could have been a ground guy on there. Um, what he does with it, I don't, you know, I don't know. Um, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a tough nut to crack. What do you do? Hey, your grandfather's D.B. Cooper. Do you want that phone call? I think it'd be pretty cool. That'd be awesome. I uh, think it'd be cool. I've got, I got family members who might not like it. So I, somebody might like me. I might be a pariah. I don't know. It just could be I'm, I'm whatever. It is what it is at this point. It's too good of a, you know, it's too big of a case to not have said, hey, take a look at this. If you're really interested in the case, you're going to be listening to the Cooper Vortex. I don't think the FBI is eagerly awaiting your conversation with me, right? Maybe they are. So I'm not sure there's going to change anything fundamentally. There's going to be a bunch more suspects. If you believe Rackstraw did it, then Rackstraw is D.B. Cooper. If you believe Recca, then he's D.B. Cooper. There's a camp out there that probably believes William Smith. So be it. If the family wants us to do something about it, they can. If not, I don't think anything's going to happen. Okay. And nobody's, and Smith's such a common name. You, there's, you know, nobody's going to be like, oh, wait, Darren, is that your, is that your dad? You know, Schaefer, are you guys related? Oh, yeah, we are. Like, oh, Smith? No, no, it's not going to happen like that. So. Yeah, and if you type Will Smith into Google, you're yeah. not going to get a DB Cooper yeah, you get the, yeah, yeah, you get the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. But when you, before you decided to sort of go public with this information, did you send an email or a letter or anything to the relatives like, hey, um, you know, I'm presenting this information, just thought you'd like to know from me before 
um, somebody yeah. else tells you about it? Great question. I was not going to go, I was not going to do anything. And Doug Perry and I talked a lot and we kind of came to this conclusion. Doug's, Doug being a journalist, I think he's a great journalist. I'm actually, I'm meeting with him tomorrow. I'm really looking forward to it. Um, he, he called me and we had, I agreed that it just wasn't, I was going to let this be grassroots. I was going to let it kind of do its own thing. And he said, hey, I want to do an article. And I said, oh, man, I don't really know if I want to publish a name yet. And he said, no, no I want to do the article on your search. And this is when I, you know, I realized at this point that Doug's the keeper of the D.B. Cooper torch, so to say. He writes a lot of articles about the case, very unbiased. He'll, you know, he's not going to take some crazy article about aliens, but he'll, he'll, he'll write about Rekka or Rackstraw or whatever, and he keeps the case alive. He wanted to write about this Max Gunther story. Um, he talked to Himmelsbach, and in order for it to make it to the newspaper, there had to be a little more substance. He couldn't. You know, for me to be anonymous, there had to be a background check. They had a, you know, he called me. He's like, hey, background check's done. The only bad thing we found about you was you once had an AOL address. And I was like, yeah, that's it. That's all. You know, <laughs> that's all you're finding about me, then, then good. So I've, I've dodged, I guess I've dodged enough bullets where I didn't, didn't, make, didn't make anybody's newspaper. Um, so he, um, you know, we agreed to put the picture in and the name. Um, but to answer your question, no. Again, what do you do? Hey, I'm going to put an article about your grandfather in there. There's no, there's no good answer. If I give my name, somebody's going to accuse me of, of, of being a publicity hound. If I keep it quiet, then I'm hiding something, whatever it is, so be it. There is no, there is no good answer. So I'll let, uh, let things happen, good or bad. I like that approach to it. Yeah. It's better than um, like constantly braiding the family for them to respond to your claims. Yeah, at some point, the, I mean, some... There's a little bit of that in the Cooper world. It's, you know, human, certainly human beings fight back. So, um, you know, at some point you wonder somebody responds, uh, you know, accordingly to constant harassment, whether through lawsuit or something else. So I don't think this constitutes harassment. I hope it doesn't. So, but, uh, yeah, I'm not, a, I'm not a huge fan of the, you know, the bombarding people. I mean, what, what's it going to get, you know, so... Yeah, and you probably don't have unlimited time to dedicate to doing that. No, it becomes obsessive too, and that's what—that's another reason for just. I, for me, for me, the important name is DB Cooper. There's no question about it. And whoever that is, Dan Cooper, if it's William Smith, whoever, let that be the individual. I think it took a lot of guts to do that. Uh, I've jumped out of planes before. It's yeah, it's fun, but under those circumstances that he did it, you got to give the guy some credit. Nobody got hurt. Um, should he have gone to jail? You know, I don't know. All these years later, it's kind of like Robin Hood, I guess. You know, beat the man, um, told a cool story in the process. So uh, give you know, give him the credit. I don't know if you know people need to be. I don't. I'm not going to continue to shop his name or, or or you know even my name or the story or whatever. We'll kind of let it you know see how, see how it goes. And maybe it shouldn't be solved. Maybe it's just a legend for forever. You know. Well, there is that argument. Yeah. You don't plan to write a book about this or anything? I don't. I don't have the time. Uh, I wouldn't if I did. Books, books, just go to the internet now, you know. I love books, read all the time. I'm not going to write a book. I don't think. I, I, things could change tomorrow. I, I do other things. I would love to see a book written about this. Uh, I think Doug Perry would be a great candidate for it. I think Max Gunther's heirs could be potentially candidates. That would be really cool yeah. if Max Gunther's heirs wrote a book about this. Larry Carr could be one someday, uh, Bill Smith's family. But I mean, I'm, I'm way down the totem pole on, 
I like being it's like being at a baseball game. I don't I don't want to be that guy keeping score, you know, or hanging hanging tiles on 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 the center field wall. I want to be there and enjoy it. So uh, I I'll read about it. I'd rather read about it than than write about it. Yeah, I kind of feel the same way. I'm a fan of all this. Exactly. That's exactly. kind of yeah. my approach. And most of what it. I have is on the blog anyhow, dbcooperhijack.com. You can go on there and I get a decent amount of visitors, especially when there's an article about somebody else. I, I get a lot of visitors, so go ahead. Yeah, I'm waiting for the next suspect. Because <laughs> I just start searching, and they go, oh, all right, who's this William Smith guy? Let me let me look into him. Quite a character, you know, worked hard, served country and family, the railroads. I, like I said before, I think there's mitigating circumstances. Uh, when you first started to put your story out there and tell pe- other people about it, what did you think of the reaction to it? <laughs> what do you get when you talk about D.B. Cooper? Uh, you usually get people rolling their eyes at me. Yeah, that's pretty much what I got, yeah. I got, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, not, I'm not one of the conspiracy guys, so if it came up in conversation, people would be like, wow, oh, cool. A lot of people don't know who he is, believe it or not. You know, if you look at, if, I, you, say, if you see, say, Zodiac, people know Zodiac, D.B. Cooper. Oh, is that the hijacker? Got it. Oh, I read about him. That's that Rackstraw guy. And you're like, no, it's not. Maybe doubtful. Um yeah, the, the the best ones were the family members that were looking at me, you know, sideways, going, is, this, is he okay? Do we got to, you know, I don't know, call the VA hospital or something? Um, a lot of people came around, a lot of people. A lot of people, a lot of people read about it and, and looked at the information and were like, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then there's other ones that, would, like myself included, would be the process itself was fun. It's like the, it's a journey or the destination, right? So... I like the chase more than I like the the kill, so to say. So without being a conspiracy person, you can appreciate some of the the analysis. It's like being on the the the, the forum. There's, there's a lot of sharp people on there. Everybody goes at each other, right? But you got professors, lawyers, skydivers, military experience. I mean, I, there's a bunch of different guys on there that have done different things. Poker player. I mean, a lot, there's a lot out there. They're, they're, they're all... I, I don't know if there's anybody, maybe we're all crazy, but pretty good experience all, all around with, with everybody in terms of, of, you know, either experience, education, or, you know, way their minds work. But, yeah, I definitely, uh, a lot of people thought I was off the rocker for a little while. But now, I mean, I probably get asked about it at work two, three times a week. Everybody, yeah, there's no, there's no, people people know who I am. It's after, Now I'm just like, hey, I'm, I'm off. I got, I got other stuff going on now, you know. Wait for November. That'll it'll come up again, and that's it. But uh, yeah. What about the public reaction or the reaction to people inside the vortex when you presented your information, your theory? There was minimal reaction in the vortex. Bruce was supportive, like he is with everybody. Um, there was a you know a couple comments like there normally is. You've been on the board. Um, suspects don't survive long on there. They really don't. Uh, if you throw a suspect on there, it's almost like. You're almost violating the rules of 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 etiquette, and so if you notice, Rashad's not talked about, McCoy's not talked about, Flyjack's not there anymore because of Hanneman, um, Georgia doesn't talk about a suspect shot or so on and so forth. So it's I didn't push it on there. I try, little I don't even, I probably never mentioned a name. I'm more of hey, could it have been an air crew member? Could it have been somebody with a grudge outside of Boeing? Could the tie have come from Titanium Metals Corporation in New Jersey versus RMI in Ashtabula, Ohio. Titanium Metals was bigger than RMI. That was right down the street from where Bill lived. 
some of those, that's, that's, that's more of what I'm more interested in. So um, I expect people to say, it's not him, you know. I don't really take it personally if I see another suspect. I do take it personally if, not say personally, but if somebody's really, like... Um, if someone thinks you're foolish. Yeah, I'm thinking more of, like, there, there's some suspects out there. Uh, Rashford's probably the best example of, at some point, you've probably done enough. You've put enough information out there. Like, how many more articles do, do you need? Um, I, I think what those guys have done is great with the, uh, the Freedom of Information Act and everything else. But I understand the reaction when a suspect comes out that you lose some of your you you lose your place there because now you have a suspect. Um, general public reaction was the picture really made a difference, and thanks to Doug for that. And he said you got to put the picture out there. I mean that. So they, they ended up putting the, the picture. A lot of people have said, "Wow, that's good." But you know, this day and age, if CNN publishes it or Fox publishes it, Fox did. I mean. It, Within seconds, it goes down this tangent of, oh, it's political, and then people start talking about whatever they want to talk about, and they don't even talk about D.B. Cooper. So that, I'm more, I'm more interested in the reaction with the people that actually know the case. If, if you're looking, you know, if you have a bone to pick with insert whatever, you're mad at the world for something, whatever. Whatever, whatever, whatever article comes out, somebody's going to be like, oh, yeah, that's because of that, whatever. So, okay. Positive that... None of our current politicians had anything to do with the D.B. Cooper hijacking. I, I'm willing to bet. So I'd agree with that. Maybe Lyndon Johnson, maybe Richard Nixon. I don't know, but whatever. So probably not either. But anyhow, <laughs> that was the yeah, it, it was a positive reaction overall. I, I didn't I didn't I didn't see any really negative. There's stuff out there. I'm sure I don't spend a lot of time checking comments. It's it's not a good way to live. No. But it, that is a good point, what you said about the forum, that they tend to sort of dismiss subjects or suspects, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that is a great point because yeah. they tend to focus on the flight path or the, the details of this. Yeah, we, it's, we're, to use another analogy, it's like we're in it for the sport. It's like baseball. You start talking about your favorite team, you're going to start alienating people. Favorite player, so on and so forth. It's so I understand. I understand the, I understand some of the rules, um, and there's no value because I'm not going to change anyone's mind, and they're not going to change my mind. It's just it's not not going to happen. You've seen it. There's no. You could have a video. You could have pictures. You could have DNA. You could have fingerprints. You could have every witness say yes. That's the individual. It's still not going to get solved on that form. We're still going to find something else to talk about. So be it. I don't even. I don't even the last time I posted on there. It's months, months and months ago. So I don't post on there very often, but I check it quite yeah. frequently. Yeah, probably about once a day. Unfortunately, I, I check it too much myself. Yeah, even once a day is too much. So, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's been fun. I, I got a lot of hobbies. I do a lot of different things. I stay occupied, so it's been a, it's been it's been fun. What do you think is the best evidence for Smith being a hijacker, and the worst evidence, or the best evidence against him? Evidence is a loose term. I think, I personally, I think the composite sketch and the picture are the best. Um, and I found those very, it took me, I got those in the middle of the investigation, so to say. So I didn't even, I had, I had these individuals sort of pegged, then I found the picture. I would say the picture, it sounds, it sounds a little off, like, oh, you're, you have a picture that matches. Depending on how you look at it, everybody's picture sort of matches. Middle-aged guy with, you know, Heck, some people don't even have brown eyes and th that are suspects. Um, 
I think his aviation experience is, is big. I think the grudge is is very underrated. Um, that that bankruptcy was the only it the, the Penn Central bankruptcy in 1970. It took until 2001 for another company to have a bigger bankruptcy in in the United States, and that was Enron. And Enron was massive, and there was suicide. There was a suicide there. That was it was awful. People lost their life savings. So when you think of company bankruptcy, if if you're old enough to remember the impact of Enron. That's Penn Central. Penn Central was even bigger. I mean, the government had to step in because they couldn't, we could not lose a, a railroad. The defense industry could not handle it. We couldn't, we had to keep it, keep it going. There were indictments, there, were, there was all sorts of things. So I'd say, you know, probably aviation experience, the grudge, uh, the picture, the worst evidence. Or what does it people say to you? It's not Smith because of this. I don't get a lot of that because there's not a lot of information. It, it's it's hard to like, people can say, well, he doesn't have the personality. Well, what is the personality? This was a thousand hijackings in the '70s. Tell me what the personality is. There is no personality. Um, he he checks a lot of the blocks, so there's not a lot. The questions I get are, well, can you can you prove he was on the plane? No, I can't prove anybody was on that plane. Even the even the the passenger manifest isn't even accurate. They're not even sure exactly. Uh, so we, you cross this threshold now of if you're if you're Walter Rekka and you don't look like the guy, you landed in the wrong place, you had a deathbed confession, burden of proof's on you to put him into the 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 section of possible suspects. If you have I'll use for instance Hanneman, Frederick Hanneman, I get a kick out of some of the comments people make about him. Somebody wrote once, well he doesn't have the personality, or well, how would he have done this? How would he have done this? And I kind of laughed at myself and I go, he jumped out of a 727. He hijacked a 727 and he did it. So he, in my mind, I got like that. He's already there. Is he D.B. Cooper? Well, you still got to give a little more information possibly to prove it. I think Flyjack's working on that. But, you know, he did it. Again, there, there's, there's no amount of evidence. Well, show me a picture that he, when he was wearing the tie. Where am I going to get that? I can't do it. Sorry. It's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, this he didn't is, have a Facebook. This is Pennsylvania Railroad, November 66. Look at that tie right there. Look at the clip. Looks very similar to D.B. Cooper's tie. So ties were worn at railroads all the time. I don't think he was in the machine shop. I, don't, I think the titanium spiral or whatever it was, it could have, it could have, could have floated 1,000 feet or whatever. It may not have been his tie, none of that stuff. Um, worst evidence, I'd say... Uh, most unusual connection would be Max Gunther's book, but I, without Max's book, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be this far. There's no way. Wouldn't even be talking to you. Um, I think if I had, you know, if, if I think if Martin and Bruce had sent me an email back saying you're an idiot, leave me alone, I wouldn't be here. I mean, you know, so I'd say the whole Max Gunther thing would be the most. I won't say it's the worst because it's not. It's the best. It's but it's the most unusual. It's the hardest one for people to to get behind. They're like, oh, a love affair with this woman named Clara, so on and so forth. It's a good story. It really is. And then the whole Cary Grant thing is unusual for people too. But um, yeah, it's a long answer to the question. No, it was a great answer. And I, I do like that you said the Max Gunther book is could be considered the the best evidence against him being Cooper. Because even inside the Cooper vortex in this community, the opinion is very split on that book. Yes. And I would say most people inside db cooper experts if you want to call them that um don't like the book i think a lot of people haven't even read it i would agree with that too but if you look at you look at the letter you there's pictures in there you read it and you go that that's this it took this big imagination to put all this stuff together so i i would suggest read the book for anyone that before they start you know 
commenting. But I think once they read it, they can still comment and go, you know, this is ridiculous. Because there is a lot of ridiculous things in there. There is. It's, you know, the, yeah. the, the true magazine. It's an, it's an entertaining book. There's some facts in there. There's a lot. I mean, you used to learn about the hijacking. But if you were to learn about the hijacking, read Bruce's or Martin's or somebody else's. They're, they're, they're pretty much unbiased. Go on Wikipedia. Don't read Max's book. But you want some entertainment and you want to connect it to, to a guy you know, perfectly fits the character. Middle age, silent generation, this, this, these men of, of the, the 60s and the 70s that are just kind of, they're not baby boomers, they're not Gen X, they don't get a lot of credit for much. Um, why not hijack a plane, B.D.B. Cooper? Fits, fits it perfectly, in my mind. So, um, anyhow. Yeah, and I talked to Doug Perry about the book, too, because there is like this discussion on it. Is it, is it fiction? Is it what, you know, and for Max Gunther to present it as nonfiction, being a journalist, having written these other books. Yeah. It, it just wouldn't make any sense to try and deceive his, his audience and potentially destroy any credibility that he had. He, he says it in the book a number of times. Hey, I, I don't believe, I find it hard to believe myself. I mean, he, he's very, the f- page 12, he says, which leaves me with a story whose truth can neither be guaranteed nor denied. That's it. He says it. He, he tells us right away. I, don't, I didn't even believe it when I got the phone call, when I got the letter. Um, it is. It's unbelievable. It's it just it's possible. Uh, it's very interesting. Um, I think I think if I think if William Smith was the guy who wrote the letter, or his, or his wife was part of it, I think he's got a really great imagination. I think it's a good story. I'd love to see Max Gunther's notes if he did save those. I think there'll be more information in there. If he saved the letters, there'd be some DNA on the stamps. I think we could get that. But that's not going to do anything. It's not going to put anybody in jail. It's not going to get any of the money back. None of that. It's just it's all. It's a as Doug Perry said, it's a public interest story. Got it. Five minutes from now, there'll be another story. So, you know, I'm flip through whatever news station. There's always something new. So I like being part of it. It's, it's fun. So, but, uh, yeah. All right. Now I got kind of a, a two-part question for you. There's two sketches of D.B. Cooper. Yeah. And the two sketches don't really look similar. It looks like two different people. Um, they're kind of referred to as the, the Bing Crosby sketch. And then weirdly, this one is referred to as the Cary Grant sketch too. So I call that the Cary Grant. Yeah, I think I think I think I came up with that. Now the Cary Grant. It's actually more than two. So you have the you have the initial sketch here. Yes, that initial sketch though that doesn't make too many rounds. No. That was from. Um, I think that came out of Las Vegas. That sketch to me looks like Cliff Robertson, which he was an actor at that same time. Cold War movies. He played uh, Peter Parker's uncle in, in the most recent Spider Man. Then you have the Bing Crosby. I'm not even sure that looks like Bing Crosby. Got it. Now you move into these other ones, which start to get to look like the one that I consider to be the main one, which is Composite B. Bill Mitchell participated in that. There's commentary that the you can see here that the, the listener can't, but it, there's, there's some progression. This looks like a, a more of a villain. The one we, we're used to now is is a gentleman. It's you know the hair, uh, the eyes, the look. It looks like a, a normal a normal person. How they're so different. Yeah, that's you know that's a, that that's that's a piece that's added to the case. So if your suspect is so and so and he looks like the Bing Crosby, then guess what gets shown in the news article? The Bing Crosby sketch. If he looks like the old man here, 
with age progression, then you show a picture of the old man. If he looks like composite B, everything I've read, the general, I believe the general understanding is composite B, which is the one you're looking at right now, is, is the main sketch. It was looked at, Florence Schaffner looked at it. She said, I remember the eyes, I remember the eyebrows. If you compare this to William Smith, it's close. It's the dark skin. There's mention of something with his teeth, like a jaw issue. On the enlistment record, you can see where there were there were axes. I actually consulted a, a military dentist, uh, naval friend, said, "Yeah, that means they needed to remove certain teeth." Like it's the, the so Bill had William Smith had some features of his face. I would say rugged that would have stood out. Um, I think Bill Mitchell has said composite B is more accurate. I think Tina Mucklow has said that. I think Florence Schaffner. I'm not sure what Alice Hancock has said. Um, any of the other witnesses probably, you know, Dennis Line, the ticket agent, isn't going to remember. So how they're so different, it's a great question. Now, some groups will say, well, that's natural. You can have a bank robbery and you can have 10 different, uh, 10 different uh, descriptions of the, of the individual. This wasn't a bank robbery. Tina Muckle was with him for, what, four hours, almost five hours? She mm-hmm. sat next to him. She talked to him. She lit his cigarettes. This wasn't a, a, a fleeting glance. Um, I would, Bill Mitchell sat next to him. Now, if I'm on the train or the bus, I'm not going to remember who I sat next to. But if it's Bill Mitchell's a young guy, and he sees this really young girl talking to this middle-aged guy. Yeah, I might remember what that guy looked like, thinking, wait a sec, what the heck's going on? That's what Bill Mitchell said. Tina Muckle sat next to him. Enough people saw him. So I would, I would say, I'd say close enough, I, I, think, I think, in that case. Why they're different, man, that's a great question. Helps, helps your case. Help, not say, it helps anybody's case. Anybody's case. You just pick the right pick, pick, yeah, pick, pick the picture which, you want. Pick whichever one fits yeah, your suspect sure. best. Yep. Do you think that the two sketches hurt the chances of him being caught. So you have this one sketch that comes out, the public sees that for a year, yeah. and then the B sketch comes out and looks different. Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So if we're back in, we're back in 1972 and now you've seen a couple different sketches, yeah, I think it definitely has, assuming people have actually seen the, the other sketches. Max Gunther mentions in his book that Clara said, the first sketch, they knew didn't look anything like him. The second sketch, they said, hey, the FBI is good. They're getting closer. This looks, you know, a lot like me. If you look at the composite B and compare it to Cary Grant's character in North by Northwest, it's almost exact. The, it the is The slick back exact. hair, the glasses, everything that goes on in that movie. Why would, why would someone middle-aged, probably doesn't have gray hair, do slicked black, black hair? I mean, I'm not... I don't need to dye my hair yet. Not, don't plan on it, right? I mean, why would you do that at, at in your you know your 30s or your 40s? Maybe your 50s or 60s. A different story. Um, why the tie? Why leave the tie? Why the suit? He he didn't wear suits normally. Is this somebody? I think I've heard before. Like this guy that wears a suit normally. If you wear a suit, and there's been times where I've worn suits, you don't have a clip-on tie. That's just that's like the only time I had a clip-on tie in my life was like for school trips to the science museum. That was it. You know, big bucket at school. Here you go. Wear your tie. This guy did not was not used to wearing ties. He was not used to wearing suits. This was a costume in my mind. There was a reason for this, the loafers and everything else. Um, yeah, if you're looking for Bing Crosby, it hurts because you don't have the other sketch. But I think if you've got the composite B and it's 1972, definitely. Um, and a, a lot of people that have seen the, the William Smith pictures in the sketch say, yeah, dead on. The like, I'll give you another instance. Some the Rastra picture, like. Got it. But look at other pictures. That's not, that's his military ID. That is not, you know, 
that's not that's not a good picture right here's you know that's my that's my license right that's my military id i mean am i not at all the same person that's three different people right yeah it, it is. is yeah so you can kind of you know beauty's in the eye of the beholder on that one so yeah and rackstraw was what 28 yeah he was exactly 28 mccoy was 28 you know i've 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 got their i got their birth you know information i'm 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 not in, i'm not in, in the business really of taking every suspect and discounting him because if i prove rackstraw is not db cooper it doesn't mean william smith is db cooper it just means rackstraw isn't I keep enough in my back pocket, so to say, to be able to, you know, if a friend says, oh, they found D.B. Cooper, I say, well, the guy they found was 28 years old. He wasn't a gentleman. That doesn't fit the profile, you know. Don't believe everything you read in the news. And please don't vote in the election either, right? <laughs> you know, so I don't care what you vote for, just at least be uh, at least be educated on it. And Smith at the time of the hijacking was 43? Yes. Yeah. Born April the 5th, 1928. So he was exactly 43. Fits perfectly right in the... The, the middle age bracket there. I say middle age at the time it was middle age. I don't think forty three is middle age now. So that's a good point. Was the was the bomb real? I don't think so. No. I I, I believe it was railroad flares. I, I think you get the same benefit of a fake bomb. Building a real bomb takes I think some it, it, it takes some skill. Um, he would have got hold of dynamite and that's a dangerous operation to walk on a plane with a real bomb. So um, I think if he got caught partway through, he could say, hey, it's fake, less of a jail sentence, got it. If it was real, that's a whole different story. Um, even Himmelsbach said in his book that when he got the initial call and they described the bomb to him, he said, there's no way. That, that sounds like railroad fuses, not dynamite. It's a railroad flares. You, the railroads would have these flares that you would you know, hit and throw to, to let the, the conductor know that there's, there's an issue on the track coming up. So my guess is he, you know, Either bought him at a store, brought him with him, probably made the bomb back home and wherever he lived, New Jersey at the time, if it's William Smith, and, and made it um, look like a bomb. Yeah. I don't see the value unless you're really going to blow yourself up. But then, you know, then, then you end up being a killer. That's, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't see, I don't see D.B. Cooper as a killer. I don't see this as a sinister event, Zodiac, that's sinister. This, is, this D.B. Cooper was, I think it was a prank, to tell you the truth. Now, if you're law enforcement, you know, it's, they're, they're mad, but so be it. Um, still prank. Yeah, get punished for it, but a little, you know, little older than a, than a frat boy prank, but still, I think in his mind, who knows? He may have thought he was going to end it right there on the runway. Overcaught, boom, put me in handcuffs, and it just kept going. So, yeah, I think it was fake. I think it was a fake bomb. Yeah, I mean, what reason is there for it to be a real bomb? I want to, maybe it was Tissot's book, but I think I read that, I want to say it was Tussauds book, but uh, he said Florence Shafter, when she went up to the cockpit, the pilots were like, well, are you sure it's a real bomb? Yeah. And they said, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. There's no reason to question right. him on that. Gunther says it was a fake bomb. Um, I, I believe I believe it was fake, yeah. And if, if you're Florence Shafter and you're looking at it real quick, it's a bomb. I mean, it, it, you know, it's like a fake bag of drugs. If you think it's drugs, you're still, you, you know, you had intent to do whatever, so... Um, and you're still going to get in trouble. Doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't exonerate him, but I think it makes him less of a criminal in my mind. Being a fake bomb. How'd the money get on Tina Barr? Oh man, yeah. I, you know what? I have no idea. It it doesn't it doesn't play a role. Um, again, I think I think it's great that there's this discussion on that. I don't like going back on the form three weeks later and seeing the same thing over and over again. But um, 
my my feeling is it could have been the dredge. He could have put it there. It could have been buried there. Again, 10,000 bills went out of that plane. They found 300. I want to know where the other 9,700 bills are. There's the comment that comes out, follow the money, and that's what's going to solve the case. If you decide, if you determine how the money got to Tina Barr, I'm not sure it's really going to help us anymore. Um, same thing with the landing zone. If you knew the landing zone or the drop zone in 1971, yeah, you could have talked to the neighbors and, and figured something out. Now it's too late. My feeling and is the money. The money was something you needed to look at after the fact. Did someone's quality of life change? Did they make a uh, unusual purchase? Did they start talking about? retiring early, not having to work? Um, did they start paying cash for things that they normally would have paid checks for, uh, used the check for? Um, that, that's, to me, that's following the money. I don't, I've seen no indicators that William Smith lived a life of luxury. I wanna hope the money went to a church down the street um, or help pay college or something. It's, it, or maybe it disappeared, whatever. But I, there's no, you know, there was no Corvette. There was no speedboat or anything else. So how the money got to Tina Bar, I find it interesting. I'd love to know someday, but not nothing I really, really pay a lot of attention to. So. But you think it's totally possible he could have spent the money? Oh, yeah. I, I, think, I think it is. And I, so that's, that's where I started. I started was how would I spend the money? And... I still have I still have some bills I can show you. When we talk about laundering money, the intent of laundering money is you've 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 gotten money illegally. You've gotten hundred thousand dollars, and you now have to show that you got it legally. So you launder it through a car wash or a t-shirt shop, whatever. The intent is you pay taxes on it, and now it's legal. Hundred thousand dollars, you pay your thirty grand in taxes. IRS says, boom, good, it's your money. You can have it. Rarely is there a situation where you have a $20 bill and you want to adjust the $20 bill. You want to, you want to spend it, but you need to, to change it. You're not laundering it. You're actually changing the bill. Laundering money doesn't change the, uh, the appearance of the bill. It just changes the source. D.B. Cooper's money, you needed to change the appearance. So, and I'm, I'm probably not the only one that that's ha has this. I think there's other, there's similar theories out there, but this is a, this is a bill here. See, there's an F there. There's no F there. That's just simple nail polish remover. Easy with a Q-tip. Easy to take it off. If you look at this, you can take a three on a on a serial number and make it an eight very easily. Especially if your one of your hobbies is printing and you're very precise. It's not That's hard to do. That's a good point. And here you can just erase an entire number. So I, I figured what, what I would have done when I was thinking about it was I would have taken the every bill with a three in the serial number, which is well over half, um, and made it into an eight, and then it would have passed. It would have gone through. Because the list that came out, there was sequence to the list. You just had to know what the sequence was. But 10,000 bills, is a lot. There's, that's a lot of bills. I don't think people were really looking for these. And it kind of stopped after a few months. I don't think he spent the money right away if he spent it. It would have been six months, a year, two years later. But what I, what I thought was the easiest way to do it is these are photocopies of, 20, of a $20 bill. It's the exact same $20 bill. comes from San Francisco. It's an L. That's the majority of the bills came from San Francisco uh, Federal Reserve. I think it's over 7,000 of the 10,000 bills. And a large 
portion of them were 1963A series. So if you're looking for 1963A series, L5943, whatever, whatever it is, and you come up with this bill and you go, oh, wow, I've got the right serial number, but you look down here and go, it's 1963, it's not 1963A. So you now don't have the same bill. How easy it is, how easy is it to just erase that tiny little A? I did it right there. So I think that, I think he could have spent the money. I just, I don't know where the money trail is. And I hope, I hope no one gets in trouble. I don't think it's, I think it's too late. So even if they find out where the money went, I think it's too late. I don't think you can, I don't think you can hold accountable anybody's heirs or anything, especially if they were too young and they didn't know anything about it. But I think there, there, there's a number of ways to doctor the bill. Who doctors a $20 bill to be another $20 bill? People take a five and make it a 20. People take a hundred and, you know, launder it to say I got this legally when it was really used for drugs. No one ever takes a regular bill and, and the only value would be the actual paper if you were to be able to bleach it and then counterfeit it. Um, but yeah, I think, I, think he, I think he could possibly have done it. But again, I think it was a prank. I think he did, I think he, he, he wanted to do it and it wasn't about the money. I think once the railroads came, once things started to settle, uh, there just wasn't a need for it anymore. And oh, by the way, at the five-year statute of limitations, when the FBI agents went back to the judge, and in my mind, was, was kind of an underhanded way of extending the case. If the statute of limitations at the point is five years, it's five years. He still would. I think he would have gotten in trouble even after the fact. The IRS would have got him. The Secret Service would have got him. You know, you name it. Whoever, whatever the organizations were at the time, it didn't just need to be the FBI, even though they had the jurisdiction. So. Um, yeah, I'd like to know. I'd like to know what happened to, to the money. That'd be kind of cool. So, do you think that if William Smith was alive today, that he could be prosecuted for this crime? I think I think cooler heads would prevail. I think I think someone in, in a leadership position would say we're not going to do it. It's not worth it. There's other things going on. There's probably someone in the in the in the chain of command that would really want to do it, make a name for themselves, get a uh, you know a confession or something, get a suspended sentence, and say I'm the one who convicted D.B. Cooper. There's people out there that want the spotlight. Uh, I've heard they wouldn't. They wouldn't go after somebody at that age. If he was alive, I, you and I wouldn't be talking. I'd be up. I'd be hanging out at a nursing home in New Jersey, <laughs> talking about D.B. Cooper. I would then take it to my grave or whatever you want to know. I, I, there's no way I would ever, you know, like turn in your own grandfather. Can't do it. Now, if he was Zodiac, it's a different story. This was, you know, Unabomber. Whole that's a whole different ball game. All bets are off. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess yeah, they could. It's still an open case, right? Yeah. But they've given. I think they've John given. John Doe indictment. They've since given. Yeah, they've since given immunity or whatever we're going to call it to any conspirators. You know, so. Yeah, I think the, the statute of limitations did it did expire for any yeah. accomplices or anything like that because there was no indictment. Yeah for accomplices just for the hijacker himself it's been some other pretty major events involving airplanes since 1971 too that are you know deserving attention outside of db cooper so yeah, i don't think i don't think there'd be a whole lot of appetite really for this so but you never know i wouldn't take the risk certainly if somebody was alive to come up and say hey yeah i did it not worth it you end up in a jail cell or Worse, I mean, you end up having to pay lawyer fees, which even if you're innocent are going to cause you problems. Yeah, which would be a bummer if you're 95 years old. Yeah. yeah. Do you think that this case could be solved through familial DNA or? Yeah, I'm a huge, I'm a huge believer in DNA uh, and systems. I'm, uh, 
you know, like I said, I, I've got a decent analysis background. Um, it comes down to do they have the DNA? And not necessarily, I think even a degraded sample could be used. Um, not necessarily legally, and I say legally, it won't, it would never hold up in court, but I think I could get the individuals with, with the DNA. We don't know if it's his. But the, the, the DNA, what's, every single day, I, I, not every, at least once a week, I'm seeing somebody else get, get arrested because of DNA now. They, yeah. can, they can do a lot. It, it's, it's crazy because there's, there's people out there that probably would, you know, take DNA off a Snickers bar from some kid that shoplifted and put them in jail. We don't, we don't want to get there, but it'd be nice to get, you know, the murderers, the rapists, whoever that are out there by using, you know, DNA. The uh, Golden State Killer... They found him through his DNA through a fourth cousin, which is, I don't even know all my second cousins. Second cousins share a great-grandfather, third share a great-great, fourth great-great-great. They had to go way back just using just real kind of manual-type work on systems and, and computers to try to find De Joseph D'Angelo's relatives, but they, they found him. That was a really good DNA sample. So I think if, if they could prove that it was his, and with enough effort, which it's not going to happen, there's not going to be enough money and enough time. If they could take the DNA and then say, okay, we believe it's his, who else's could it be? It could be Tina Mucklows, it could be Florence, so on and so forth. Rule out all those individuals, and now you're left with this DNA, and then go to one of the relatives if they were willing, you could, you could get, I think you could get close enough. But that's just the layman's, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor in any of those things, but I... From what I've seen, the things that they're doing, I think if they knew it was Cooper's DNA, they could do it. But what are the chances that they have it? I mean, DNA had only been mapped 10, 20 years before 1971. It didn't, you know, the, the testing that we have now was light years away. It, nobody knew. So, I mean, who knows what that sample's like? Is it, on the, is it from the, the pen? Is it from the clasp? You know, who knows? I don't know. They threw away the cigarette butts. They threw away the Too cigarette bad. butts. Too bad. Yeah, I thought I read the um, the DNA sample was from, like, spittle or spit on the tie. Yes, that's right. I've heard that, too. Yeah. Which, and they said it's good enough to rule someone out, but not necessarily pin it yeah. on someone. Yeah. So. That tells me that if, if they know it's his, or they believe it's D.B. Cooper's, and they can rule someone out, then the information that they're left with, I think, could rule someone in giving enough, given enough information. In other words, if everything else fits, then we go to the DNA and they go, wait a second, William Smith's DNA was on that plane. And, oh, by the way, he had a grudge. He had aviation experience. He, he knew printing. He liked playing, you know, okay, still, but it's... I don't know if this will ever be solved. That may be, you always ask that question. That's my favorite question. I was going to ask. Well, wait, I, I won't say anything. Well, yeah, edit it in or whatever, I guess. Is that a question or? Sure. Will this ever be solved? Today, my answer is, is no. I think beauty's in the eye of the beholder. If you're, if you're the Rackstraw crew, it's solved. If you're the Rekka crew, you know, nobody's going to tell you it's not your uncle. Uh, if you're William Smith crew, then hey, it's him. So... You know, it really would take it would take something really big to to solve it. And then what happens? I don't know. You know, like I said, another news story comes along. So, is the story less interesting if it's solved? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yep. I think I think if it's solved, there there'll be some there'll be some sort of uh, second and third order effects, maybe some some collateral impacts. Like, 
you know, there might be some visibility on what happened to the railroads back then. That may be a reinvigoration of that that time in our in our history. Um, I think, you know, air air traffic. Uh, Max Gunther's name may come out. There'll be some benefits, but solving it is, you know, it's like the last out of the the World Series. It's it's over. You know, kind of like the the lead up is 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 almost uh, is, is better than the the end. So that's my my opinion. For a guy that has a suspect who I believe enough in to to you know get out and, and risk some some ridicule and who knows what else. Uh, say I hope it doesn't get solved is maybe counterintuitive. Uh, sounds like a paradox, but that I'd be okay, you know. Do you think too much time has passed for this to be solved to anyone's satisfaction? Yes, absolutely. If this was uh, maybe the 80s or the 90s, I think it'd be a different different ball game. They were still actively pursuing the case. Uh, you also had a lot of the suspects were, were still alive at that point. But now, yeah, I think just it's too too much time has gone by. I believe they found Jack the Ripper, one of the most notorious killers in, in, in London in whatever, 1800s. Nothing's done about it. What do you do? Somebody's name. I'd recognize the name if I saw it. I'm not going to publicly say it again, but it's, that's who they think it is. But so what? What does it mean? Yeah, I think, it, I think the 50-year anniversary is going to be big. I think we're going to see a lot of maybe, maybe another good show like Case Closed. Um, a couple other ones have been okay. I like them because they, they, they bring, if you look at the stats on Wikipedia, whenever there's a TV show out there, the visits jump up. And that tells me, hey, somebody's interested in the case. Um, but if you were to say, I think the interest in the case is, you're probably one of the youngest guys on the case. I'm probably one of the youngest guys in the case. Um, I don't consider myself too young. I'd like to be younger. But um, it, if you look at, if you just look at Reddit, for instance, for whatever reason, the Zodiac Killer's got like, that subreddit has 15,000 active participants. D.B. Cooper has 150. There's like two, and there's not a lot of postings on there. So the, the, the current generation, Instagram, Reddit, all that, they're not really into D.B. Cooper. They don't, they don't know who it is. Now you're from here, you, you, my understanding is up here in the Northwest, it's, it's significantly different. I've yet to ask anybody about it. I don't want to be that guy, you know, asking, you know, over beer, like, hey, tell me about D.B. Cooper. So, but <laughs> I might, I'm here for a few more days. I'd, I'd be curious, but uh, it'd be great to see a resurg resurgence, you know, people more interested in it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of history of this case, you know, the, the flight crew, the, the, the aerodynamics, the, the parachutes, the hijacking, the money. I mean, you just, there's, there's so many different angles you could go down. He beat the man. He really did beat the man. Yep. Beat us all. How often does that happen? Not How often does that happen often. and people are saying, hey, I'm okay with it, right? So Robin Hood, if you will. Yeah, and like, like you said, no one got hurt. So, yeah. you know, even though he committed a crime, uh, you can kind of root for him. You got to, yeah. I don't minimize the impact. I, I, I believe, I think... It would be nice, I think, maybe to solve it for, say, somebody like Florence Schaffner. My understanding is she, she, she had some concern years later, was still, you know, worried about bombs and things like that. Maybe it'd be nice for some of those people to know. Um, who knows? There might have been somebody might have helped them, and that's still alive on that that was on that plane. Maybe they don't want it solved. I don't know. So there's. It would be kind of cool to see a resurgence, um, but with that will come more suspects because all it takes is a deathbed confession. There's some. 
There's some ridiculous suspects out there. There really is. There are. Yeah. Well, you touched on a little bit that the Zodiac Killer subreddit has thousands of people, and the D.B. Cooper one has 17 people in it. Why is it that this case doesn't get the attention that it deserves? I think, unfortunately, we humans or Americans in general have a fascination with true crime and killings. I mean, that's... If you've, if, you've re- if you've read about the Zodiac and some of that, it's just it's awful. It's despicable, but people are into it. Um, it's just weird. D.B. Cooper didn't kill anybody. There's no ending to the story. There was no explosion. It happened on the night before Thanksgiving. Everybody else is bu- When that rolls around, that anniversary, everybody's busy. They're not worried about this. There's just so many reasons why it just is not. Uh, it just doesn't capture... Uh, a mass quantity of people like, say, the Unabomber or the Zodiac or whatever. Yeah, I haven't been able to figure that out either. I yeah. mean, in, in my opinion, it's the most interesting. It is. I agree, too, yeah. Some of the, 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 the a lot of the other true crime, it's just, it's, it makes you feel dirty. It does, you know, it's like the, the worst of, of humankind. D.B. Cooper offered a tip for his drinks. He offered, he wanted meals brought on the plane. He was a gentleman. I mean, that's, of course, he even offered to share yeah. the ransom money. Sure, yeah, yeah. That he was risking his life for. Right. right, It would just be us for the time being, our little group. Do you wish that you had stumbled on William Smith just before he passed away? How often do you think about that? When I think about the case, I, I've been asked that by some of my, my close friends. Um, yes and no. I, I Yes, I do. I would have I gone to see him. I would have gone with... Uh, with, you know, I would have given my word. I would never have said anything until he, he had passed. I don't know what that reaction would have been like. Um, April, I'd say April 5th, 2018 is when I got involved. Looking into it, I'd you know, known about it as a, as a kid. And by the end of April, I was confident enough to send something to the FBI and, and you know, say, hey, look, I'm, this is who I am. I understand I'm not, I'm not going to call. It's like calling the fire department every time you know, somebody lights a mattress and you can't do that. So I understood the complexities. I wasn't just an average citizen, so to say. And I found out his name around Memorial Day. So he died on January 23rd, 2018. By May 23rd, I had a name. So I was, I was on a couple months away. That's, it was close. I, you know, believe me, I think about that. What if it had been, what if I had gotten hold of that a couple months before? Uh, I would love to, love to have met him. I've been through the area. I'm not. I, I never lived specifically in that town. I think I've I've probably shared the same space as him in passing. Maybe not a foot away. Maybe not a hundred feet, but thousand feet. So, yeah, I'll, I'll live with that. That's pretty crazy. Yeah. What haven't we covered? Yeah, my only the only thing would be the whole titanium piece. I think that we've really people have really focused on. The, the Northwest, and then the CRT tubes with Tektronix, and now it's RMI and Ashtabula. But, um, you know, I have, I'll, I'll read this, this little bit here. Um, titanium metals is estimated as a company at 50% of the finishing titanium capacity. Reactive metals incorporated 25%. So this, this new thing where RMI is where he worked at Ashtabula, Ohio, um, they weren't even the biggest company at the time. Titanium wasn't necessarily as rare as, as one might think because we were, um, you know, the United States was putting titanium on airplanes. You can recognize some of these. 
the A6, the F-111, C-130. These are all planes that were flying during during that time. So, um, and oh, by the way, Pennsylvania Railroad and New York Central Railroad had ports, had, had coal piers on on the river there at Ashtabula. They became the Penn Central. So uh, could the tie have come from there? Possibly. I'd like to see more... I'd like to see more work, deeper work done on the tie. Uh, I think I think my two favorite podcasts that you've done are Tom Kays and Martin's. Um, I'd love to see more. I'd like to hear more from Tom. Like, what could we get? Could we get? Could we get clothing from some some of these environments? Did somebody save a coat from the railroad or a coat from Boeing or something? Just get keep keep doing the testing to see what we could come up with. Um, well, you know, yeah. he had that other Boeing tie to compare yeah. it to. Yeah, it was totally clean. It was like yeah. they were on like a boat tour or something. And I was like, yeah, I saved my tie from 1971, and they put it on an electron microscope. So clearly the tie that D.B. Cooper wore that was on the plane came from a manufacturing environment. Probably wasn't a school teacher, probably wasn't uh, a lawyer, a doctor, whatever. So it, 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 it's suggestive that, that he would have been, you know, somewhere around manufacturing. A lot of manufacturing in the Northeast at the time, so... I don't think he was overly lathe with that tie. I think he would have been, you know, caught and strangled with any tie. Even a clip-on is not something you want to get caught in a lathe. But someone at the rail yard possibly would have had that coal agent, freight agent, who knows. So, um, yeah. Why wear a suit? That's Cary Grant in my mind. That's that's North by Northwest. That, go, go out in style. I mean, Richard McCoy wore what a clown. He looked like a clown. Other people just dressed in regular clothes. Um, I think it's for the it's for the effect. Because even a basic skydiver would have known at least uncontrolled. You can't control the chute. It's at night. It's cold. It's dark. It's windy. It's rainy. You got to at least have boots and maybe a helmet and gloves and all the rest of it. Could he have had the gloves in in, in his um, attaché case possibly? But the rest of it that was a real gutsy jump there. So. It was effect. He wanted to, you know, why wear the sunglasses? He didn't disguise himself that much, really, with the sunglasses. People saw his eyes. Why wear the sunglasses? Again, I think it's Cary Grant from North by Northwest. It's the same guy. They look exactly the same. I think it's completely for effect. It does make him super Why all the cigarettes? Why order bourbon? Why not vodka? Why not a beer? Why not whatever? Why go into the lavatory? Uh, You know, there's, there's, it's... There's substance there. There's something, something more, and that that, help, that helps the case. He just wasn't some, you know, rough criminal or whatever that, uh, you know, gets on a plane and hijacks. You can't root for. So yeah, he was, you know, dapper, debonair, whatever you want to call him. So, and then the tie. I think I think he left the tie on purpose. I think it was clearly, you know, here you go, screw you, you'll never see me again. Like if they had shown us the tie in '71, I wasn't even alive, but. Somebody might have recognized it and be like, "Yeah, damn it, that somebody that one of those railroad guys stole my tie." During the bankruptcy, these rail workers would they would actually go in and steal trains. They would take locomotives and move the locomotives. In uh, St. Louis, they would take Kodak film, and Kodak was real cozy with Penn Central, and they would empty entire boxcars into the Mississippi River. These guys were pissed off. They were these aren't managers. These are you know these are regular down-to-earth workers that are mad that their their livelihood is, is, is being ruined by the corporation. So I think it's all all for show. Tie, throw it off, and that's it. I was uh, brought up the D.B. Cooper case exposed by George C. Nettle. I hope I'm saying his last name right. But 
he talks a lot about there's no official FBI profile okay. of D.B. Cooper in his book. And I thought that was really interesting. But if you think about it, how could there be a profile? Sure. He yeah. was, you know, the really, there was that other Paul Sini skyjacking. Right, right. That happened before. It was a little bit different, but he's basically the first one to do it, jump out of a plane. Um, and also he was much older than the person you would think would commit this type of crime. Exactly. Yes. Uh, yeah. You'd normally be thinking of a male, yeah. you know, 16 to maybe 26. Right. Not a guy in his mid forties. If you look at, if you look at the cases now and we, we look at the certain cases in history that have been solved, you say, yeah, absolutely. We, we know it was D'Angelo because it was a cop and everything else. Well, it took him 40 some years to solve it. Even though there were the people that said, Hey, we think it's a police officer because of, some some of the, the the actions if this is finally solved i don't think people are going to remember the profiles they're going to say yes the profile fits the the uh the one who committed the crime the unabomber their profiles were all over the place now we, we go yeah oh, yeah it's a crazy professor that you know taught it at you know went to harvard taught it at caltech or whatever and lived in montana of course because it makes sense now there were people that thought he was a mechanic that lived in Cleveland. He had lived near Cleveland or something. So, you know, the yeah, what is the profile? I don't know. What's the profile of a hijacker? I think William Smith fits the profile of the individual. I think he fits the profile of the man in Max Gunther's book, certainly. Um, but what's the profile of a hijacker? Who knows? There's a lot of them. There are a lot of hijackings, right? Yeah, and, and most of them are younger dudes. Yes. Yep. Yeah. They're idealists. Interesting is the, I've seen some comments on Facebook on sites that are specific just to railroads, and there's commentary from people that knew him that worked with him that believe it that said, "Wow, I never." They use the term mild-mannered radical. So he had, he had a mild manner but radical. They said he was. Everyone said he was a great man. People said he was a little could be a little touchy, like he wanted things a certain way. So the personalities, from what I understand. And that would be another avenue if someone was really interested in the case. Like, start finding guys that worked with with him, the railroaders. But I don't. I'm not. I don't want to support. I don't want to support certain people that are going to go out. If it's if it's for the history of it, go for it. But you know, other than that, I'll keep certain information myself just to not not that I'm going to bring it up someday. I just don't want somebody you know messing around too much in it, right? So. So you did talk to other people he worked with. I've talked, yes, I have, yeah. But I'm referring specifically to people that made comments on the article that I've seen that actually did work with them that I have not talked to. So yes, I have, I, I have, I have communicated with an individual that did work with him and Dan Clare. And he thinks it's plausible? No, well, he, once the whole hijacking thing came up, kind of lost contact. That, it's interesting how that happens. Yeah, interesting, right, yeah. If, if we're going to talk about that with, with Klansnick and Smith, both... Yes. Both two suspects that have come out pretty recently. Yep. And I really like both of them. Yep. And both of them seem to be at the same spot where it's very plausible. It makes sense. Both guys check a lot of boxes. Um, with Klansnick, there's really no motive per se. True. Um, that we know of, right? That yeah. we know of. And then with Smith, they're both right there but can't get past the it's him. Um, we all agree it's him because of this. Sure. Are, are they going to get past that? No. I think you need you need the families. The Klansnick family, from what I understand, is is 
some I think are receptive. It's hard to keep track of everybody, um, all the suspects. But I, you need we need you need more. You need the FBI. You need DNA. So what if you get a if you have a motive? There's there's a bunch of motives out there. Vietnam, Boeing, layoffs, civil rights movement, the railroad bankruptcies. Got it. Okay, so now you have a motive. Does that how does that help things? It helps a little bit. You're right. I think there's a couple suspects that are sitting right there. You need the FBI. You need the family to come and say, here we go. We've done this extra work. We remember Thanksgiving. We were, we've got medical records of a broken leg. We um, Here's a $20 bill, all the rest of it. So where it sits, again, it's kind of like, in a way, it's better that way. It's He's sort of just kind of floating there on the surface. And again, if, if family members want to take it, cool. If not, just keep their mouth shut. Don't say, I mean, they don't have to say anything. That's it. You know, that's who cares? You know, it's um, that. Yeah, that's, that's that's a good question. I, I talked to Doug Perry about this a little bit, but the silence from the families on some of these suspects, I find just totally puzzling. I mean, if I accused your grandfather of committing a crime publicly right. and your one of your friends tells you about it yeah. and then you go and look at this guy's blog sure. and there he is, you're lining out how your grandpa did this. Right. Aren't you going to make a comment on that? I don't know. Yeah, it's it's. Do you if what if he is? What if he is DB Cooper? Maybe you don't say anything. Maybe you're going to write a book. Maybe you've talked to a lawyer. I don't know if I don't know if the William Smith family has any idea. I really don't. Who knows if they even have seen this? You would have had to have been watching the news at a specific time. Didn't show on the East Coast. It might have briefly, or read on. I mean, if I go on CNN right now and I go an hour from now, I'm going to see completely different stories. It's just crazy. They, they, That's it's true. possibly you, you may not know. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. You know. Even I guess if I Google my name when I was bored, it might pop up. But you Google Smith. I mean, how many how many names are going to come? We talked about that before. Even if I Google my name, I don't think there's there's too much information out there. I don't know if it would show. So, do people even know? And what if they do know? I don't know. You know. So, that's uh, I think we take it a lot more seriously than other people. I really do. Oh, for sure. You know. Yeah, I always think everything Hence the is obsessiveness. A big deal. Like some, you know, they'll go, "Well, wow." If if everybody knows you, where you work, and friends, and everything else, yeah, they do. But when it crosses this this threshold of obsessiveness, if you're talking about a little more than, you know, just a couple seconds, then it just it completely shifts. I don't I don't want to. I'm not an amateur sleuth. It's not my thing. I you know I'm happy with what I do. I'm good. Like don't I just. But I, I think we we know too much. Talking to a sports fan, you just you know you know. I could talk your ear off about certain sports and teams. That probably upset some people because just my teams happen to do that these days. But that's what happens when you know you're the best. But um, you just you got to you know got to know the audience. So um, yeah. Yeah, and the other podcast you did, I thought it was interesting. You said, you know, maybe there's 20 or 30 people in the world that can talk about D.B. Cooper for sure. more than 30 minutes. Exactly, there is. And a, and a year ago, a year and a half ago, I wasn't one of those guys. And it's kind of cool now. Like, I can, I can have a conversation. I've actually gotten rusty. I had, I've got to read up again because you forget these things. It's just you do. Bruce is probably the only guy that knows. You know, there's a few other guys that probably know remember all the details. But they can probably, he, he can name everybody on the plane. He can tell you color of the flight, the, the uniforms, all the rest of it. It's, 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 it's a lot of information. It really is. Yeah. Oh, yeah, especially yeah. if you start going down the rabbit hole of researching all the various suspects, oh, too. Yeah. yeah. 
And then you, I can't even get the facts straight on what actually happened during the hijacking because I've read so many different accounts right. yep. and they'll change a detail here or there to fit their, their narrative. Sure. Yeah. And so I, yeah, I you add another variable to the equation. It just, it, it just, it, it grows exponentially. There's just, it's, it's impossible to keep track of it. That's why in a way I sort of, I envy some of these guys that don't have a suspect. Like I, I would not be in this if I didn't have a suspect. I would have, you know, <laughs> the fire would have burned out about three, four weeks in. I would have moved on to something else. As it is, it's, it's too much time. Fall's coming up, football season, I'm good. So, yeah, I, but people stay in it, yeah. All right. Well, well, if people want to uh, learn more about William Smith or if they have a question for you, is there somewhere they can find you? Yes, uh, www.dbcooperhijack.com or just Google William Smith. It's a WordPress blog. Um, there's a contact form at the end. If you want to try to trick me, I, I didn't, you know, wasn't born yesterday. You can try to mess with me if you want. I don't, I don't get much. I, the first person to contact me was Joe Weber. So, really, if I can handle Joe, I can handle anybody. There's no guarantee I'll talk about the case. So just, you know, so. Yeah, somebody wants to ask me a question. Somebody asked me the other day, could he have been eaten by wolves or bears? I said it's possible. I don't <laughs> know if there's a lot of them up in, in Portland anymore, but, you know, hey, go for it. If that, if that gets you, you know, that floats your boat, gets you into the case, go for it. Go down that route. I'm not going to tell you it didn't happen. Yeah, that's it. Well, thanks for coming on. I really thanks appreciate Thanks for having it. me, Darren. I really appreciate it. I'm glad I can meet you face-to-face. So, good. Yeah, for sure. If you want to get the full scoop on William J. Smith, head over to dbcooperhijack.com and check it out. You can also follow our anonymous friend on Twitter at dwno11, the number one, at Delta Whiskey November Oscar Oscar November Echo One, for uh, those of you who know the NATO alphabet. You'll find links to it all in the show notes. All right. I want to take a minute and tell everyone what Russell and I have going on here. When we started this show, it wasn't for you, it was for me. As someone who was already sucked into the Cooper Vortex and a huge consumer of podcasts, I had listened to everything that came up when searching for D.B. Cooper. It wasn't enough. I wanted a show dedicated to the topic, featuring long-form interviews with the authors, researchers, investigators, and other players in the D.B. Cooper game. I've been lucky to be able to speak with many people inside the Vortex, learned a lot, and I've made a lot of friends doing this. I'm really proud of the show that Russell and I have created, and we're very grateful to the people who have come on the show. This project was never intended to be permanent, and I've been telling myself and my wife that I would be escaping the Vortex at the end of this year. Well, I have an announcement to make. Russell and I have decided to continue to do the show for another year. Uh, We agree that we just aren't done yet. We both work full-time outside the show, we both have very busy personal lives, and we're both funding the show from our own pocket. We don't expect the show to make us rich, replace our day jobs, or buy us brand new cars. What we would like though is for the show to be able to cover some of its own expenses. We started a Patreon page for the show, so if you are a big fan of the show, or if you think the work that Russell and I are doing is valuable, then I would ask that you at least check it out. We have extended episodes and bonus episodes available for all the Patreon subscribers. 
If supporting independent podcasts isn't your thing or you're as poor as I am, then we understand. The show will continue to appear in your podcast app for free, but if you want more, you can find it on Patreon. And as always, you'll find a link to all that in the show notes. Is there a suspect we haven't covered yet or someone you think we should have on the show? Let us know. You can find us on Facebook. We are The Cooper Vortex. On Instagram, at The Cooper Vortex. On Twitter, at DB Cooper Podcast. Or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. Thank you to our anonymous friend for taking time out of his vacation to hang out with me. Thank you to Russell Colbert for hanging out with me at Enrique's. We need to do that more often. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex. Vortex.